how many of you have been given a handwritten note from Walter Knott, played poker with Nolan Ryan, and have been an official scorekeeper for Major League Baseball? My guest today, Mel Franks, has done all that and then some. I sit down with the former longtime sports information director at Cal State Fullerton to have a conversation. First day on the job, they gave me a typewriter from the chemistry department. It had a carriage on it, double the size, and all these chemical symbols, none of which was a dollar sign. And I'm thinking, I'm hired to promote a football program or a basketball program, and I don't have a dollar sign. And what? now we're talking <laughs> a whole different way. I had an assistant, Janet Donovan, who ironically was Pete's wife. So there's that connection again. We had this office that we shared. It's it's a closet. I mean, it really is. There's, there's in the main hallway, the gym, and had the board the sports information on the door. Well, all people saw was information. So everybody going through the gym that needed a question would come to you. Our, we had one of those half doors, like oh, a barn right. door. Yeah, yep. So we could we'd have to close it, and then there was no windows, and it was hot. And air conditioning didn't work very good, and. It, we didn't have a phone. The phone rang, and the, there was a wall between us where the ticket office was. We had to go out the door around or get on the phone. It's, I think about it now. I just can't, can't believe we functioned. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. We've had such guests who have been awarded the Silver Star, Emmy winners, and my friend Mike Greenlee. I get a phone call from George Horton, and he goes, Mike, we'd like you to play Cal State Fullerton. Are you interested? And I'm like, uh, can you hang on a second? Put my hand over the phone, because the phone was tied to the wall. You couldn't just walk around with it. <laughs> um, put my hand over the phone, and I said, <laughs> said, Dad, what do you think? Should I go, go to Cal State Fullerton? He's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, do you want to play baseball at Cal State Fullerton? I'm like, I guess. And he goes, well, I guess that's your answer. So I literally in about two minutes took my hand off the phone and said, yeah, I'll go to Cal State Fullerton. So that was my like big reveal of where I was going to school. Right. I get a call and Coach Horton goes, good. Tomorrow is the last day you can register. I need you to come down to school and we'll get you registered. They'll take care of your classes. We'll get you signed up, all this stuff. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor before having our conversation with Mel Franks. Mel, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Look forward to it. Tell me how a Midwest boy who falls in love with baseball makes his way out to California. In a 55 Mercury. (laughs) You were old enough to drive? Uh, Not quite. No, my parents, uh, we lived in Chicago, in in proper Chicago up until I was age six. And then we moved out to the suburb of Justice, Illinois, until I was eight. And then my dad was, we moved briefly to Arlington, Texas for like six weeks and he didn't get a job. So then it's... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you just make that swing through Illinois to Texas? Well, we did. It was, we got one gift for Christmas. I know what time of year it was. I don't remember what year it was, but I remember it was Arlington, Texas in a motel for six weeks and then he didn't get a job. So we moved back to Chicago. Then they had an army, ex-army buddy who lived in Hawthorne, California. He said, come out here, there's jobs and the weather's great, blah, blah, blah. So we packed up the 55 Mercury with a roof rack and everything we owned and made a vacation out of it. This is before freeway, so it probably took two weeks. Yeah, I would bet. And we just drove out and landed at Santa Monica and lived in a beach house for a couple of months and then got a job. My dad got a job and my mother finally got a job and here we were. 
Like gypsies living on the beach. <laughs> it looked like it. The, the Mercury, we, we, the biggest disappointment was we couldn't drive through the sequoia tree that you can drive a car through because the rack was too tall. The rack was too tall. <laughs> Wait a minute. He did make a heck of a holiday out of it. Somehow you went that far north. Yeah, we went like through the, Mount Rushmore, the Little Bighorn, and went to someplace in Oregon, then turned left. This was before Google Maps, obviously. <laughs> before a lot of things. <laughs> did, do you think he just had a map or he just drove? Oh, I think I had a map because uh, after we lived in California, see, that was 1956. When 1958, we bought a new 58 Ford convertible and drove it back to Chicago. We drove, we parents drove straight through. Wow. And this is Highway 66 again before we left wow. on a Friday afternoon and got there a Sunday night. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Talking about going so, for I've it. always been a good driver, I guess. I got driver genes. <laughs> driver genes. <laughs> yes, that explains a lot. You fell in love with baseball as a Cub fan in Chicago, right? Yeah, my mother would take us to Cub games on Ladies' Day. I still got a ticket stub, one at 60 cents, and the kids got in free when took the L. They play day games. There were Ladies' Days? Ladies' Days, yeah, this was before politically correctness. <laughs> and so your mom probably wore a little dress with little white gloves and a little, <laughs> little purse over her wrist and Yeah, my brother's too. You and, you know, again, I, what I can remember when I was in the house on Wilcox Street, it was, I was age four, my brother was two years younger, so so age four to two, and we lived there just until I was age six, and he was four. We must have gone to, you know, 10 games a year, and Ernie Banks, this rookie, was on the new shortstop. And you had no clue what you were... no clue, yeah. And your mom lived literally across the street, right, from Wrigley Field? Yeah, one time she uh, lived in one of those apartments that you can see the field, and Gabby Hartnett hit the homer in the Gloman. She saw that in person in 1932. Two or 33, something like was that. Was she in left field apartments or right, right, field? right field? Oh, my Addison goodness. I never remember which street is which until I go back there. Wow. So that, she was a baseball fan, and uh, my dad played some semi-pro baseball up in northern Illinois until he got hit in the head with a bat next <laughs> in <Jeez>. his career. <laughs> but he, he took me to uh, Comiskey Park to so we watch, we watch Ted Williams, and there was a guy named Billy Klaus who was from northern Illinois who he played with in high school. So yeah, the parent, parental direction was definitely the reason. The reason of the love of baseball. That's not bad. And uh, interesting people say, well, you're a great Cub fan. You must love the Bears. I go, eh, NFL was nothing then. Right, it wasn't. It was, you know, I, even the, you know, we moved to California and the Rams, eh, the Rams, eh, no big deal. It was all baseball. Right. It, people don't understand back then, it was the real passion of the country was baseball, not football. Oh, America's pastime. And then when the Cubs went to WGN uh, Satellite TV and Ted Turner did the Braves, that's just, well, those two franchises are so popular now because they, they brought local baseball into rural areas. Right. Everybody can watch them all of a sudden. But it was in a, place, in a place like Chicago where you had two teams, you were for one or the other, not both. Right. Now, how long did you guys live in Santa Monica? Uh, well, we lived in Santa Monica a couple months and then moved about two blocks away into Venice. <laughs> We had a two-story house. A rabbi owned it and lived upstairs. And that was an interesting uh, education. <laughs> and then I was in third grade when we moved, and the schools in Venice were not as good as the schools in Santa Monica. So I finished out the school year, and then we had to move back another couple blocks back into Santa Monica so we could go to Santa Monica schools. <laughs> so we moved around a lot. Then we bought a house. We bought, I keep saying, we parents bought a house for $15,000 in Buena Park in 1959. So we made a drastic move from Venice out to Orange County when the five freeway was a two-lane highway. There must have been nothing in 1959 in Buena Park. Well, it was right next to Knott's Berry Farm. And our, our backyard literally opened up to a cornfield. And that was probably a farm, right? 
That's well, Prairie Farm it was, was amusement, a farm. It was an amusement park, but you know, they st- I think they still package a lot of their per- products on the property. But it was the cornfield right behind us. It's now the employee parking lot off of Western Avenue. Okay. And that you went through the cornfield to get to Walter Knott Elementary School. So. <laughs> and you've had some experience with Walter at that point, right? Didn't right. you guys? We used to, you talk about sports. Well, by this time, now we're getting, you know, almost junior high age. We played football in this parking lot because they still may be grass parking lots there along Western Avenue. And right. We, yeah. the tree, they had trees there. We call those our 10 yard lines. They were probably five yards apart. But so that was our field. <laughs> then the police started hassling us and saying, you guys can't play here. Well, we marched into Walter Knott's house. He lived at that time on, on the property in his old, his old house. His wife had passed away. And we knocked on the door and said, we want to play football in the parking lot. <laughs> he, so he gave us a note. He says, as long as there's no cars there, you know, other customers, you got my permission. So a couple times the cops showed up and we showed them our letter. They, 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 they didn't bother us anymore. Tell me you still have that letter. I wish I did. Oh. Uh, the other the, the thing was unique. that They had a, call it a, cesspool or something they used to hose off the chicken cages in this oh in god this area there's a slab they pull a truck up there and hold, it is the stinkiest probably talking about environmental rules and no fencing or anything like that. <laughs> wow. and we, we hit a ball or a football in there let it go it's gone yeah <laughs> history no one, no one wants to climb into chicken crap for a ball so did you enjoy your time though living in that like very rural Orange County, because at 59, it must have been so well, when quiet. when we first moved there, we, we went to Long Beach for a grocery store. This is March of 59, and about later, the All-American Market opened up at uh, Orange Thorpe and Western, finally. But that's how, yeah, Sunshine Market in East Long Beach. On what Carson. a haul. And it, it, there was no, uh, the, the streets were, you know, had ditches instead of sewage. So when it <laughs> rained or flooded, it was two-lane roads and the water overflowed. Plus, you had cow pastures. I went to Kennedy High School, which they carved out of a dairy land. So you'd go in the morning, you you knew which way the wind was blowing. (laughs) (laughs) That school must have been really new. Well, the house we lived in, Buena Park, I lived there from 1959 until 65 or so. In upper school, I, I went to four different schools in six years and never moved. Because I went to Walker Junior High in seventh grade, then they opened Crescent Junior High in West Anaheim for ninth, eighth and ninth grade, then went to Savannah High as a sophomore, then what? they opened Kennedy High School, so we had to go back. We had a kid down the street, they so had the four lines, kids, they, went to four, they graduated from four different high schools. So the lines just kept moving? They kept moving the lines, yeah. They, the moved, they were building schools as fast as they could. Jesus. So, I mean, Which turned a great opportunity because you had new schools, you had you know, no returning letterman, reports or anything, <laughs> class offices you could run for, there was no, no clicks were established. And, and you were a pretty good athlete. Uh, eventually, again, because of the opportunity, um, I look back at my junior high annual, it's a long story I was looking at the other day, and I, I didn't do anything, I was in the band. <laughs> Because my, my dad that passed away in November of uh, my seventh grade year, so I missed part of the basketball season. Then I sprained my ankle. We played in the parking lot. And, you know, the the, car, the tire stoppers. I stepped on one of those. Climbed oh. basketball. It was we didn't have a gym. Then uh, so I, I guess I didn't do any sports. But Crescent again being a new school, I had to talk to the doctor and let me play football because it was like. Five, three, hundred and fifteen pounds, or something like that. <laughs> he was worried for your safety. You know, I was going to get killed. And we played basketball on the asphalt outside and ran track. And again, we didn't have a school. So we got on a bus every day and went to Pearson Park in downtown Anaheim. There's an amphitheater that we used their dressing room. That was like a dungeon. That was our locker room. And then we practiced out on the park 
every day till they got you know, some lawn in at the school. And that was the problem. The same thing happened when Kennedy opened. The gym wasn't ready. There was, we practiced at Cypress. We practiced football at Walker Junior High again. Used their locker room. Had our spring or summer weight training. Was at Cypress Park, just out on the left field of the baseball field. So the the, the downside was you didn't have any facilities. But the good side was you know, it was equal opportunity. starting from scratch. Sure, it's interesting that they would open up a school. <laughs> That wasn't completely built yet. They were still trying to finish an auditorium or a gymnasium or, so, you know, they got the parking lots in so you can, you know, roll your ankle, but they couldn't finish up the whole place. Well, it's kind of like construction nowadays on freeways. Sure, Nothing right. ever comes in on time or on budget. Yeah, I could still tell you the five's not done yet, so don't don't come out. Well, the 91, they're starting to add a lane from Green River to the toll road westbound. They started just this week. and they, they tore up that freeway for five years. They couldn't finish the one lane. Now they got to tear it up again to put the lane that they couldn't afford the last time they did it. They'll figure it out. Yeah, I hope so. So after high school, do you have a decision or an idea of what you want to do? Well, I was I was athlete of the year at Kennedy High School. I was I was the best player on the basketball team. I pat myself on the back and led this, this team in fouls. So I, you know, I got a lot of playing time. Now, are you taller than 5'3 at this point? Um, yeah, I'm 6'2 playing center and <laughs> have no hops. That's why I got so many fouls. We, we, our first year, we won two games. Again, and now we had no senior class, so that's the good news. You get an opportunity to play. The bad news is you're not very good. So we went two and whatever, we lost, 22 or something like that. Two and 22? Bobby Rich playing for Long Beach Wilson High. That was the one guy I remember. Sierra High School was the CIF champion. That was our home opener. We got killed by 135. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, yeah, that didn't, didn't take much to be the best player on the team. But then our senior year, I think we were about 500. Okay. So, uh, anyway, back to your original question, I was a you know, good high school athlete, made some all-league teams, stuff like that, but I got like two recruiting letters, and one was addressed to Mike Frank, so <laughs> that was too serious. That tells you. One was to New Mexico State, and one was Louisville. Why those schools, don't ask me why. So I, I was just going to walk on at Cal State Fullerton. They were going to start a football program in 1967. I said, well, heck, I'm skinny still. I was like 6'2", 170 my senior year, I guess. So I'll go lift weights and then you know, be ready to play football. Because I, I, I was a good student. I had a scholarship. My mom threw Douglas uh, Aircraft Welfare Foundation. I really had a you know, tuition of books any place I wanted to go. But okay. uh, I said, well, I'll stay home. My mom was you know, by herself. So I'll go to Fullerton. And, well, I enrolled in school and right away. They said, well, oops, we pushed football back to 1970. Well, thanks a lot. Not here. So I played freshman basketball. That was it was fun, but it was, the program was uh, not very good, shall we say? Sure. And I w- went to the Orange County uh, All Star Football Game. They played every summer. The Bray Alliance Club yep. sponsored it. It was about the seventh or eighth annual. Now it's you know fifty or sixtieth annual. And I saw that I got kind of inspired to play football again. So Cypress Junior College, here we go again, another brand new school with no facilities. <laughs> right, The yeah. first year it opened while I was at Cal State Fullerton as a freshman, that was Cypress's first year. It was all in temporary buildings, and they, they sold it on propinquity. You could park real close to your building because no one was going to go there. In that time, you had to go to your either Fullerton or Cypress. You you couldn't just go to any JC you wanted. Oh, really? You had your re- enrollment requirements, right? At least for athletics, anyway. I know okay. maybe I'm an average student. So the rumor was a lot of guys coming to the Army. There are going to be a lot of guys. So Fullerton was number one in the nation. 
annually. Right. How but, had but that you had to going? stand in line to hold a bag as a, as a new as a freshman. So hey, let's go to Cyprus. So I said, heck, I don't like Cal State Fullerton. Atmosphere. There's four buildings on campus, and the football program wasn't going to happen. Basketball wasn't going it was so good. So I said, I'm going to Cyprus JC <laughs> and play football. And well, we were one and eight. We won one game, and that those poor guys chafed. We beat them 35-28. The only touchdown I scored all year was the, made it 35-14, to 14 and we held on and went 35-28. So I say I had scored the winning touchdown. You which scored the winning Not quite as dramatic as it sounds, but and Pete Donovan, who's crossed my life many times, he was the publicist for Cyprus. He had to go into the, this is you know before cell phones. This is 1960, what, 67 football season. He goes into the office of the Chafee College coaches, and they're distraught. They just lost to the worst <laughs> team in America. And here's Pete on the phone trying to call the Orange County newspapers to report the game. And he's trying to downplay how excited he is because he's the publicist. He's, he's been working for a team that is, you know, we were we were bad. It was, so anyway, he, I, lo- I love to have seen the expression on those coaches' faces. <laughs> what position were you playing? I played just tight end on offense, but then as the season progressed, we started losing players. We lost our opener 72-3 to to Grossmont. A lot of guys quit the team right away. Wow. Brian Sipe was the quarterback who later played for the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> he was still thrown in the third quarter. He was 49-3 oh. to at the half. And he's still <laughs> slinging it. He's still slinging it. So a lot of guys quit. And anyway, we stuck it out. The next to last game was at Riverside City College. And they kicked our defensive tackle off the team at halftime, mouthing off. So coach said, well, well, you line up here. Here's the, the stance. And here I, I think I played at 6'2", 6'3", 190 by then. It beefed up a lot. Oh, wow, yeah. So I'm playing defensive line the second half. It was no practice, no idea what the hell I'm doing. Then the last game of the year was at, at Fullerton J.C., there were people seriously thinking, are they going to score 100 points? Because we had 20-some guys left on the team. And some of those guys suited up, couldn't play. They just made it look interesting. So I played 60 minutes. You played both ways. And I, with a busted toe, I remember I busted my toe in practice during the week. And they said, well, put a bigger shoe on it. You know how much you can do for a toe. So the pregame, I went out and put my regular shoes on the bench, put on these big shoes to see if it was going to work. Those shoes could still be there because I went on the field and never left the field. It was, we had no bodies. Uh, and FJC, they had a running back named Bob Ezor, never forget his name, had a duplicate jersey number. He scored twice. They, 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 we go on the, the field, they, third kickoff team. <laughs> What's the third kickoff team? We, we scored it. The final score was 68 to 8. And we were driving to score a second touchdown. I'm running a pattern in like the right corner of the end zone. And Frankie Lopez throws it to the left side, and a guy named Bob DePippo intercepts it. goes 100 yards the other way. Oh, thanks. I turn around and start jogging down the field, and I'm gassed. I'm, I'm out of shape. and I'm getting killed. These guys, DB1 players, they had to hold up that PAT till I got there. <laughs> they needed a loving guy, and I'm just I'm walking. I'm, I'm not going to waste any energy. Wait, they held it. I had PAT, got in the stance, did it removed. And got in position to be kickoff return team. So. Oh my goodness! But we survived, and it, you know, it's, it's a great story. Now it wasn't so much fun. And then I started. <laughs> then we had basketball season, which I, you know, I talked to the coach Don Johnson, who became a legendary coach and had a great program. So I got to play basketball once I got in a little bit of basketball shape, and then 
uh, forward, got in academically ineligible, so I got to start the second half of my career. But by then, I realized this is the end of the road. Um, I'm gonna be, I went to Arizona State as a student, no more student athlete. You were just tapped out at that point. Well, I just reached my potential. Like, right. One very You're fast, one very strong, and you know, I, I could have stuck it out and you know, probably made the squad, but I went and played. It was. I, I got beat up enough by FJC. Uh, Larry McDuff was uh, across the line from me both ways, it seemed like, and he went on to Oklahoma. Uh, I try to think some other players on the team. Uh, tight end to Cal was on the other end. It was it was a, it was men against boys. So what at Arizona State catches your eye to drag you across the state well, line? Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> He was the governor of California at the time, and they closed the app admissions to the state system, both of them. This is 1968. Yeah. So uh, I, was, I got involved in journalism. We worked for the school paper in high school and at Cypress, well, the Hoofbeat. So we went to a journalism day, and Stan Offaly, my eventual college roommate and buddy since fifth grade, we kind of ditched the program, went in the library at USC <laughs> and started looking at college catalogs. And we went, Arizona State, hey, this looks too interesting. It's close. You know, it's, it's not too expensive. Uh, our football coach at Kennedy, John Handgarner, had gone to Arizona State, was a quarterback there. So we called him and said, we'll visit his office, I'm sure. What's it like? And he had some glowing remarks. So we applied, and here we go, Arizona State. Side unseen, here we end up just jumped into it. Jumped in, and we got two other buddies that same they were in the same position, except they didn't have the grades to get in right away, so they were going to come a year later. We bought a mobile home, 10 by 54 footer in Garden Grove, and towed it, well, had it towed <laughs> to Tempe and rented a spot in a trader court for $35 a month. And four of us, well, two of us lived there the first year, and then three of us the second year. And we lived for you know, practically nothing. That's cheap living. That's smart. Yeah. One, someone had the idea to live in a travel trailer, and we went and priced travel trailers. And the guy, uh, Carl, somebody was a salesman's name on Beach Boulevard in Garden Grove, said, well, you realize you can get a full-size mobile home for less money because it's not self-contained. You're not paying for all the utilities and stuff. The one thing you led another, my mother signed for the thing. <laughs> it was like three thousand something like dollars at the time. It was eighty. I remember it was eighty dollars a month. So each of us had to put it in twenty, even the guys that weren't coming yet. Uh, but then the rent was for the space was like twenty five bucks, and plus water. I guess we had to pay for some kind of utilities. Right. So we lived in after the whole thing was done. I said Stan and I lived in it the first year, and then Stan went and got married and moved out on us. Oh. So Larry and Dave and myself. This is my senior year. Then I graduated and left, and those two guys stayed there with a third guy and moved in and brought in a tenant. And then we sold the thing for basically what we paid for it. So that's a great we, investment. We it was a great investment. Yeah, and it's, the, the, the trailer park is still there. Uh, of modern, course, it modern is. trailer court is about a mile <laughs> east of campus. So it was, you could walk if you had to. I had a motorcycle. You could, you know, great parking. This is nineteen class of nineteen seventy. It's the. Uh, the, the, the trade, of course, a little rundown, shall we say. It wasn't very nice then, but that's dumb. <laughs> now, because it's 1970, are you thinking Vietnam War at this point? Oh, yeah. Right, because, I mean, you had to be. Everybody's I was 2S. I you know, went down and got my selective service card, did my physical stuff. Uh, uh, that's on the lottery. Uh, the lottery, I think, was 1969 when they assigned everybody right. a birthday, your priority order. number. My, bro- my brother got 340-something, so he was safe. I got number 197. And this time, the first year they ran through the lottery, they went well into the 200s, maybe 300. I don't know. 
So I was at 197, and my, the, the way the system worked, you were deferred until you graduated. Right, you had to be. And then that was your year. You were, if you got taken in the draft, that was it. If you didn't, you were done. You, you were eligible for one year. So I said, well, I'm graduating from college. There's no one, I don't know, I'm going to look for a job. Because what's your status? Well, I'm 197, and this is June. They're probably at 125 or something like that. I go, I'm done. I'm gone. I'm going actually, to the jungles. I'm going to the jungles. <laughs> uh, and I'm looking at all my friends. that They're overweight. This guy's got a bad knee. This guy's, these guys are all, for whatever reason, not in the same predicament as I am. So I decided, well, there's a psychological warfare unit, Fort MacArthur in San Pedro. I'm going to go down okay, and see. How did you know there was one there? I don't recall. <laughs> Psychologically speaking, uh, the, the, the top secret project. I don't. Know, uh, someone had it. Someone had to know something about something. So I so went down. So you go to San Pedro. Look uh, at that. My girl. Well, I been married. I got married in uh, July of. 1970, so probably still my girlfriend at the time, Nancy and I would drive down and I go into the, re- the office to fill out the forms. I'm interested in enrolling or enlisting. The guy starts typing out the form and the typewriter ribbon runs out. He says, well, i got to go requisition a new typewriter ribbon. He goes and gets the requisition form and now he's got no, doesn't have a typewriter to fill out the requisition <laughs> form. <laughs> So I go, it's catch-22. Huh? I don't remember what happened, how we filled out the application, but I said, this is not for me. I'm going to take my chances on the lottery. Well, to make a long story short, they stopped at 195. So that, I've never played the lottery since then. That was we your buy, ticket. I won my lottery <laughs> ticket. Because uh, we had a couple of kids from our high school, you know, go over there and not come back or came back in a box. So it was... Sure. It was it was not a subject that you could avoid. No, it must have been pretty heavy on every male at that time, that that's what they were thinking about. And at least the system prior to that was you never knew. At least with the lottery system, you know, you, you, you were under the gun for a year. And then, again, once you pass up, then, then your commitment was complete. Right. So, okay, so you you're lucky by two numbers. Right. Now what's your plan? You're, well, I'm, you're graduated. I, I'm, I'm graduated. I'm working in a liquor warehouse in Anaheim where I had worked the holidays. Again, you know who you know and not what you know. But you graduated My, with a journalism degree? Or? Yeah, BS in journalism, which is <laughs> Typical, appropriate. Right? Yeah, very appropriate. Right? <laughs> I, I don't want to be. I want to be. <laughs> I want to BS my way yeah, through well, college. That's, that's part of the reason why Arizona State. Stan and I were looking at these catalogs. And we both had completed two years and uh by going there, your major, you took mostly all your classes were in your major instead of stuff that you didn't have any interest in. So okay. that, that was part of the emphasis. But uh, uh, but a bachelor's degree in science of journalism, just a BS is just so appropriate. It, it, it fits a little bit, <laughs> we know. Uh, but anyway, I worked in a liquor warehouse, Alfred Hart Company over by Disneyland in the winters, in the holiday time, and then in the summers, and I was working there for four, four thirty-five an hour, which was the, I mean, that was the labor wage. That was the, I was a Teamster Union member. That was good, that's, that was that's going right. And then I, I went to an Angel game, and on the scoreboard it said, "Congratulations to Pete Donovan, sports writer for Fullerton Tribune, just had a daughter, Stacy." I go, guy, Pete, it's a publicist at Cyprus. I said, I, wonder, I didn't know he was at the Tribune, so I tracked him down. Now, how do you track him down? Because this is pre-internet, so it's not like <laughs> well, you Well, can... he worked at the Tribune, so I just called the Tribune. Okay. And, yeah, when uh, you could call people and get... Yeah, well, actually, I went to Clyde Wright pitched a no-hitter. And I said, I wonder how Pete handled that story. So I went to buy the News Tribune the next day, and, well, it was a holiday. 
I mean, it was an afternoon paper, but when there was a holiday, we put the paper out. The, we they put out the paper the night before, so he had no right. story. <laughs> so, like, so that's what I, I called him. Said, "You know what's up?" And in the conversation, he said, "By the way, we just fired a guy. There's an opening." Are you interested? Well, that's a career type job, but it wasn't pay. It was $110 a week, which is not as much as I was making the right, liquor warehouse. That's less than the liquor. So, like a Bob Lenard was a sports editor, a famous sports editor. He's about four foot eleven. He was known as a jockey, and he was a big horse player, and went to USC with Steve Bishop, and was you know in the crowd. He called. He said, "Well." Here we go again. The coincidence, the Orange County All-Star football game is this weekend. Go cover, write a story, and it was like a trial run. A trial run. So I went and covered the game and wrote a story, and obviously it was good enough. They offered me a job, so this is... Uh, the game was played in August, so like three weeks before high school football started, you got the job. Uh, the good news is you got the job. The bad news is you report at 5.30 in the morning. You're opening on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and I'm not a morning person. Uh, <laughs> so it turned out that's the, the, the third guy on the rung of the ladder got to open the, three times a week at 5.30. So, man, I had to get up at 4.30. So we got married, and my... First morning, my wife got up and made me breakfast, and that was the last time she got up and made me breakfast. Plus, I had a motorcycle. We lived in an apartment off of Euclid and Lincoln, and it was a Triumph 650, and it made some noise, even though it was legal. At five something in the morning, I'd, I'd walk it out to the street to be nice to the neighbors, but still, I had to start it up sometime, and I got some dirty looks the next day, usually from somebody who I woke up. Now, starting a Tribune like that, you know, today they give you a laptop and a badge and everything. Did they give you a a typewriter. A typewriter? Yeah, you had a, a traveling <laughs> typewriter? Oh, no. Yeah. The full-fledged, like, giant... Just uh, Underwood or whatever the brand giant was. Giant brick. Uh, if you could lift it, you could use it, I guess. All right. So, yeah, I might be where I had Cypress JC. It was my college, and I had Servite, and who was I? I had Savannah. We covered Savannah High. Uh, I think I had Fuller. We kind of rotated around. So, so the Fullerton Tribune covered a Tribune little outside of. It was North Orange County, basically. Okay. So it was the Fullerton schools plus, uh, because they were in the freeway league, Kennedy and Savannah, and then Servite being a private school. And then that Lowell High School was in existence yep. at the time. Uh, Sonora. La Habra. Uh, Brea, La Habra. Sunny Hills, were they? Sunny Hills, definitely, yeah. Uh, that was about so. It was basically, there was three of us. Bob Lenar was the editor. He had FJC and the horses, and he had a couple of high schools. And Pete Donovan had Troy, and he had the Cal State Fullerton, which now was starting football. Okay. And he had the Angel Beat, which we covered basically most of the home games until okay. they were out of the race, which. And they just cut it. <laughs> right. It was July. In July, <laughs> cut it early. So it was a great exposure. And this, we covered each high school like they cover SC, UCLA in the papers. Well, not now, 10, 20 years ago. Right, but you we covered to, them in we depth. Had to come up, we had to try to come up with a daily story. And doing it for five, six high schools, you had to work. You had to really tap your uh, ingenuity and creativity. Well, talk, especially if you had a coach like Gil Tucker at Fullerton High. Great coach, but he'd say nothing. Well, <laughs> you got two, one guy, uh, Randy Hutcherson, turned into, a, I think, a, went to Navy in some place, and Gary Fowler was at Cal. They had some great players. Uh, well, the whole team played well. Well, no, Gary, uh, he had an okay game. <laughs> they just, it, it was their style about selling it, so you had to really 
learned to pry some words out of some coaches and other coaches that weren't very good. Uh, they kind of BS you and tell you how much how improved their team was, and then they go one and eight. So <laughs> it was a great experience, and uh, we had fun because you'd be I'd open at five thirty in the morning, and then the rest of the guys had to be there at seven, and you'd be done by nine. That was like your deadline. Wow. Then you'd go home or do something or play basketball or you had the afternoon off till practice started. Then you call the coaches at night. So you worked kind of the early morning and early evening and it kind of messed up the rest of your life. But you know, if you're going to be in sport, that, that's that's the way it goes. That's, that's the way the, it goes. Here's the schedule. Deal with it. Yeah. It's funny. Sports is kind of like a 25 hour a day job. It's never you know, seven to ten. Yeah, and then if you have a break, at our level, we didn't have any breaks. My, my big story was, well, Pete, Pete left, so I moved up to the number two spot. So I only had to open on, what, Wednesdays and Fridays at seven o'clock instead of, or at 5.30, so that was nice. But also, I got the angel beat. And now, the angels, but to be there at 5.30 in the morning, why? Well, your deadline was like, you know, the first thing you read the wire, the UPI stuff okay. that happened overnight. And you'd mark, with a pencil, you would mark up this piece of paper that came out of this. Right. a tell. I don't know what they call it, teletype machine. Right. You get the little, the skinny little tapes with the scores, but then you get stories on printed out like a typewriter, but just on it was blue ink on yellow paper. Remember that? So you were editing first thing in the morning. You didn't have any radio. You didn't have ESPN. You know that was like your first source of any news what happened and what happened and like sometimes general news would interrupt you the, the Northridge earthquake was like 6 o'clock in the morning I'm sitting there and the buildings start shaking <laughs> and suddenly now you're working for news you're not working for sports right and the, the, sticker, the UPI machine went off for about a minute and then it came back on and the earthquake hits Northridge well no kidding <laughs> <laughs> I'm here I knew it hit someplace <laughs> not too far away um, so you get the number two spot you, you so get the number two spot so now I get to cover the angels and they're AMO at that time was the, you know, the, the Times and the Herald Examiner and the Register and the Long Beach paper all traveled with them all the time. And then the local papers, the Pomona paper, the San Gabriel paper, the Valley News, the Tribune, the Anaheim Bulletin, that the Angels would take you on one road trip a year. Just kind of a reward right. or something like that. So the, the trip I took was turned into the trip from hell. We let, we played on Monday. It was a holiday, so on a, must have been Fourth of July or Memorial Day. Played at home on Monday, left after the game, flew charter, which is the first time I did that. But this is kind of cool. But you fly all night. You land in Minneapolis at six, seven in the morning. Go to a hotel, try to rest, and you have a game that night. Well, you you're exhausted just being a writer, much less being an athlete. So that's Tuesday night. Then you play Wednesday, and then the writers always talk about this bar in Minneapolis, Duff's, greatest sports <laughs> bar in America. Well, we first night I was too tired. Well, the next night we'll go tomorrow night, and well, the game went 14 innings or something like that. So <laughs> of we we pass we work past closing time. We get up the next day, which is now Thursday. It's a day game. After, the getaway after, game, after right. a Getaway game after this long game the night before. So we play the game. Uh, I don't know whether win or lose, but get on the plane, fly to Oakland. Get there the late Thursday night. Now you're gassed. You're sleeping. Friday night we play a 28 game. Rudy May oh. and Vita Blue. Oakland won one to nothing in the bottom of the 20th. American League curfew was going to take effect if they didn't score. So then the next day, oh, wait, we go back. That's the game where Tony Conigliaro struck out five or six times. <laughs> he retired in the middle of the night. 
in a lobby at the Edgewater Hyatt House, and the Jerry Waring was the traveling secretary. He says, Mel, you might want to come down the hallway. Tony Kigero is retiring. That's it. That was it for him. He it just called it. Because he, you know, he, he would come back from the eye injury, and then it just, this is 1971, and he just, he couldn't do it. And one of the frustration, he snapped, and he's, he's retiring. Well, I go back to my room, realize I still have a deadline, because my deadline's like 8 or 9 in the morning. So I stay up and write a story. It turned out I had a scoop of the world. Because all the morning papers were done, they didn't have anything. So, they didn't have it, right? They, you know, maybe Honolulu could get it or something <laughs> like that. So I write the story, and, and then the guy at the desk at the Tribune, Bob Zabel, he played it up well. He said, "Hey, we got a scoop of banner headline story," and uh, so I we had a day game. It, it was Saturday, so I come strolling in about the third inning, really, and then I remember Ron Rappaport, the LA Times, bows down to me. That's a bit Mr. Scoop, and I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling great. We had a double header on Sunday. And it flew home. So I'm thinking of, I don't know how many hours are in six days, 140, something like that. I was involved with the ballpark or the team or something, like 100 of them. <laughs> wow. This is, this is not the life that you know, I was led to believe is the luxury yeah. of Major League Baseball. Yeah, everybody thinks it's sexy until you yeah. get into it. Fortunately, it was all-star break then, too, so we had some time to... <laughs> but that's, the point is how you stumble into things, and Pete did... Pete was my publicist, my publicist, the team's publicist, Cypress, and I had some of these credentials, so we got to know each other, and we were together on the hoof, Pete. Then he, he was uh, the reason I stumbled into the Fullerton Tribune job, and with him leaving, was the reason I stumbled into the Angel beat, which then led to working for the Angels for six years. And then when I was applying for the Cal State Fullerton job, Pete was a beat writer for the LA Times. So he, <laughs> he kind of greased the skids there, too. So he, he's, I, I owe him a lot. Without Pete, you would still be at that liquor <laughs> warehouse. Probably, <laughs> probably owned the liquor store. But <laughs> Now, how, I mean, how do you decide uh, at that point, if you're having that, that much work at the Tribune, that the Angels job would be any easier? Well, Because now you're really in the, in the mix. Well, Pete and I, again, we decided to coach a Pop Warner football team, an expansion team, and we were good at starting things from scratch. So <laughs> here we go again. We were 0-9-1 and one our first year. And we, we, our, our rationale was none of us had kids on the team, so we didn't have a favoritism. And two, we were dealing with coaches trying to understand their problems. So, well, let's, let's coach. Do our, we'll be on the other side of the fence. And it really was opened some eyes into things. But the, what it really opened eyes was dealing with parents. Because our, right. our team was based around Sunny Hills High School, and we had probably a 36-man roster, and we probably had 50 sets of parents because oh half boy. the kids were divorced. And sure. Uh, David Guthrie's mom is Mrs. Smith, and Mrs. Jones is, you know, goes with Jerry Brown, and <laughs> trying to try figure which kid goes with which, which kid. Like I said, with our first team, we were an expansion team, and we didn't. We were 10, 11, and 12, but we only had 10, 11-year-olds. At that age, one year is a big difference in all sure. kinds of reasons. So the second year, now we got all this experience. We're good. We're like nine and one. And we play a team that's not very good. So we started a bunch of kids that weren't very good just so they could say they started the game. We have parents who complain. You got this momentum now. Oh, <laughs> God, parents. So we we got a wide open. We did two years, and our our, daughter, our daughters were involved. Our peace daughters were involved in cheerleading, and it was a family affair. So... It was kind of fun, but um, where was I going well, with this? Well, with the Angels. I mean, somehow oh, you, right. you started a minor league football team and then you jumped to the Angels. So, so uh, 
realizing what the coaches put through and the hours he put through, and I, 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 I could see it from the coaches' vantage point more than the newspaper man's vantage point. Okay. And at our local level, we didn't rip people. That wasn't our purpose. But the pros you do and the colleges you do. Yo, you shred. So I had, well, going back to Chicago, I always said, guy, if I worked for the Cubs, it would be a great job in the world. Well, I, exposed, I was exposed to the Angels, and between covering the team at spring training, too, play poker with the PR guy, George Lutterer, some of the coaches. I got to know some people. So again, right place, right time, who you know now, what you know. George Goodale was Gene Autry's PR guy, going back to his Indians. No way, days. yeah. Well, he retired, so they had to hire somebody new. So here I was, they knew who I was, and at this point I said, well, I'd rather be just writing the positive part of the news instead of having to do the negative side. I didn't like the negative part of it as much. So they offered me a job, and it was a slight pay increase. And I took it. This is uh, January of 1973. My last function was uh, working at the Rod Carew press conference when he was signing. <laughs> so, and I, over the years, we've had some contact with Rod, so I was a kid, and ended up my last guy. Last press, my last duty as a PR guy for the Angels was to uh, make you look good as if your own career didn't already do that. Because yeah. <laughs> for some reason, I had to drive his car. He had a Porsche Carrera, and he had a bowling bag in the tr- in the trunk, which the trunk was in the front. Front, sure. So I'm driving this car, which is you know who knows how much it's worth, and then nothing, nothing like I had ever driven before. And there's this clunk in the front. I don't know at the time. It's a bowling ball. Uh, so why I remember that, I don't know, but. I just didn't take Rod as a bowler, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, it must have been. <laughs> so those time at the Angels, I mean, that's they weren't great. They weren't good teams. They were okay, but they weren't contenders. Was was it a challenge being the PR guy with a team that's you know doesn't yes. have the recognition? Yes. Like, yeah, the Dodgers were winning up the freeway, and yeah, we were definitely in the competition with the Dodgers. Plus, we'd hire so many people. Dick Walsh was had been the general manager. Red Patterson was hired from, away from the Dodgers to be the Angels president. Uh, there was a lot of Dodger influence. And then the first, about the first thing we did we did when I started was they made the trade, Angels and Dodgers, Andy Messerschmitt and uh, Ken McMullen went to the Dodgers for Frank Robinson, Frank Robinson Bobby Ballantyne, Billy Gerbarkowitz, Mike Strahler, and Bill Singer. So you had a 50-year team that had just played for the Dodgers. So that was the, I remember the opening night in 1970, Richard Nixon was the president. He was there throwing out the first ball. Right. Frank Robinson had a home run his first time up. I assume he won the game. It was a great, memorable night. I said, this is easy, but <laughs> a, couple, a couple of weeks later, Nolan Ryan throws his first no-hitter in Kansas City. I want to say June 15th, 1973. This is exciting. And then a couple of nights later, Bobby Ballantyne hits the outfield wall, breaks his leg, and ruins his career. Right. That was never the, the ups same. and downs real fast. So, uh, you know, we had some opportunity. We had Ryan and this kid named Frank Tanana debuted in September. Yes. I, I, I didn't travel the team that much, but I took a late season trip. To, it was in and out to Kansas City and back. And now, was, why didn't you travel with the team that much? Well, Ed Munson, who was the second, again, it was a three-man operation. George Rutter at this time was the head of PR and promotions and just about everything. Okay. Ed Munson was a publicist who had been there before. Uh, before George Goodale left, and then I was the third guy. So Munson was the main traveler. And okay, so you're the third guy. I'm the third guy. My title was director of publications. The big deal was do the program and new releases. It's like when I first started, I said, here, here, do, do the Palm Springs scorebook. Okay. So I was like, it was a more publishing job. Than, and then the, the, the Big A scoreboard 
had uh, two contract operators, uh, Bill Spees, Joe Halbert. They ran the board, but they weren't necessarily baseball guys. So they said, well, Mel, we want you to sit up in the booth during the game. And when things happen, the stats, which is commonplace now, although, you right. know, for <laughs> these World Series records, they kept coming with every inning, you know, the first right-handed. Cuban <laughs> yes. Hit, hit, yeah. a, hit a ground rule double off the left center field wall in the World Series history. Well, it was a little different era then. So I, would, I sat in a booth and would... Uh, tell them if something happened. Well, by the time I translated it to them and they put it up, it was too late. So they said, well, why don't you run the message board? So I became the message board and operate, not the walls and strikes, but the message board bottom, which again goes back to technology. It was a ticker tape. You fed it in. It took 30 seconds to run up that board and then you'd post something like that. It was, at the time, it was cutting, cutting technology. But so I sat there. So we had some fun to do it. And Nixon would sit in the booth with Gene Autry. He sat next to me. Right. They were longtime friends. They were longtime friends. And he was a big baseball guy from Fullerton and Whittier area. Now, is he out of office by then? No, he, 73, we'll see. I think he's in office. He came yeah, back he's, after his office. I think he's right. Well, he definitely was in office because the opening night, that was a big deal. The, the, I, I got a picture on my wall in my office of me holding back a photographer Nixon also in a picture so that's as close as I got to him you know I was thought I was sitting you know I, I literally I sat next to him during the games he came to because Gene Autry would sit in his booth and Nixon would take the seat to his left and there was a glass partition in my seat right yeah, and I said this, if someone takes a shot, <laughs> misses. I'm, I'm a target here. So, but he would come to games frequently because he would. His house was in San Clemente. Yeah, San Clemente. Uh, he had yeah, five, six games a year, and you but knew that's when he, a lot you knew when he was coming because uh, sure. the, the week in the office, the FBI guys started patrolling the halls and dogs and started coming down the hall. Right. And you knew, you knew he, he was coming or he might be coming. They had to go through all that, even if his plans weren't uh, cemented. But even five or six games is a lot for a guy, oh, a president, to come to the same sporting event. Yeah, and then I, I, I was about years years later, I guess, two, well, after 9-11, when George Bush um, threw out the first ball at Omaha. Oh, yeah, what 2000, a that was. 2001. 2001, yeah. It was before September 11th when we were there. Right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, because after September 11th, we didn't get there. So anyway, it was just the difference in security, and it was plus the Omaha was a little different. Anaheim, but Anaheim was kind of lax compared to what Omaha was like. I, oh, sure, yeah. I later recall. I mean, Autry ran that thing very mom and pop. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. They didn't have corporate money like a big conglomerate just throwing money at that it. That was his probably biggest, biggest weakness. He was a fan too much instead of a businessman or he, he liked his player. He didn't, he didn't want to cut people or trade them because he became to like them. Right. He was a friend. He was a friend. He was, he was a very uh, – the funny story too is I was a Roy Rogers fan as a kid watching on TV. And then when we moved to Santa Monica, we're driving down the street and there's Roy Rogers walking down the street. My dad pulls the car over. Mr. Rogers, we take a picture of you. And both, my brother and I both had Roy Rogers sweaters on just coincidentally. Really? So he was impressed. And I said, I got that picture someplace too. It's kind of faded. So all these years of the Roy Rogers guy, then I ended up working for Gene Autry. Who Gene Autry kind of replaced, Roy Rogers kind of replaced Gene Autry. But they turned out to be friends, but in some ways they were rivals. Right. How how was it working with, with Mr. Autry at that time? Well, he's, a, he's a good old boy. I mean, he's from Oklahoma or someplace like that. And he, he always had iced tea on his counter, but it was not necessarily straight iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> it 
So we helped him out of the booth a few times. And he was a big man. He, he was a big guy. He was heavy. Yeah. I don't know how tall he was, but he was a, he was a load to us to help him. And he had these tiny little feet in the cowboy boots. And it just it was like what keeps him from falling over. <laughs> um, was was that? I mean, because the the Rams weren't there yet. Oh, so no. the stadium was still with the they, World Football League was coming into existence then. So and I, I ended up running the, the message board but, for the football games too. Right, but the scoreboard was still in left field, right? Yes, the big, the big A. A. And so, I mean, how? What was like a day to day back then? Which is people don't realize how the sports have changed. Well, even the last first twenty years, we had to, we but, watched the fifty seven freeway get built toward us. That sure. was a big deal. When it got to Catella from the southbound to Catella, that it made it so much easier for fans to get in the ballpark. And then when it connected to the 22 and the 5, the Orange Crush, that was that was heaven. Because there was nothing out there. That, you know, it was just on the boonies and our crowds, you know, we barely drew a million. And right. This is Nolan Ryan's pitching. When Ryan was pitching, there was 10,000 more people in the park than anybody else. Yeah, the next day it would dip. And it was just a dying day. And I remember Fan Appreciation Day by September when the team's out of the race. George Letter went up in the, the view level, which the tickets then were probably $4 or something like that. <laughs> Handed out leftover promotional items. They just want to thank you. There's so few people he could do it. He could walk. He could and personally go up and thank people for coming to the games. Wow. Because <laughs> you, you could always tell the, by the aisles. If it was 5,000 crowd, it was aisle 13 on the third base side. If it was two more aisles, it was 7,000 crowd. Another crowd, it was 12,000. So the, the average would be, well, if you play 80-some games and you draw a million, that's, what, 12,000, something like that. Sure. Ryan would pitch, it'd be 25,000. Somebody else would pitch, it'd be 5,000. Jesus. So you, and then meanwhile, the Dodgers were filling up the stadium. Yeah, but that's just the way it goes. And the biggest problem then was television. The, the, the TV guys on the Channel 5 and Channel 7, they could leave their studio, go to a Dodger game, have dinner, cover first five, six innings, and be back in their studio for the 11 o'clock news or 10 right. o'clock news. Right. Well, Anaheim didn't happen. It was too far. It was an hour at best each way. And when they finally came up with the satellite trucks, that helped. They could bring the satellite truck out and run the tower up in the but then the, the, the talent usually didn't come so mm-hmm. you were you were second fiddle all the time i remember one at one point i went over again to cal state fuller and the clippers called want to be interested in the pr job i said thank you but you guys are in the same position to the lakers that i was with the angels for six years to the dodgers and it is a hopeless situation and it's to this day the clippers is still <laughs> second fiddle. still second fiddle right and the Angels are still second fiddle, and the technology's made it better. Uh, the, the, the talent doesn't go to everything's kind of programmed. It's not, it's not the same situation, and everyone's getting highlights off of satellites and stuff like that, so it's a little different. The ge- geography doesn't hurt as much, but just the tradition and the history and the attendance numbers, still quite a different, still night and day. Right. You can call yourself Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but you're still. The Anaheim Riverbed team. Yeah, it's an Orange County <laughs> semi-native. Uh, it, it bothers me that it's LA Angels. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the California Angels was confusing enough. Anaheim's you know, people know enough about Anaheim because of Disneyland. I don't know what's wrong with Anaheim Angels. But that's not my point. Now, people don't. A lot of people might not re- remember or realize. You didn't go to Arizona for spring training. The Angels played in Palm Springs because Autry lived there. He had he, a home there. Had a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so how was spring training in Palm Springs? That must have been really interesting. 
It was fun. Uh, I, You're well, close to home. It started in Holtville, which you may not even, you know where Holtville yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. El Centro? Yeah. You go to El Centro, you go right, east about eight miles on the... The Marines had a base down there, didn't they? Well, El Centro, the Blue Angels work out of there. Oh, that's right. But Holtville is just the carrot capital of the world. Oh, and, but they had four, they had four diamonds, you know, home plate, butted, butted up, and they the team would go down there. They stay at a motel in El Centro, and drive like I say, it's about ten miles east on I eight to Holtville, and then practice. They had the facility because Palm Springs only had the one field, the one field, the one little infield out behind the fence, so there it wasn't enough facilities, and the players hated Holtville because there was nothing to do. I mean, Don Baylor commuted daily John from told me Orange that. County. He said he would drive he it. He would drive and, it. And Nolan. Ryan did the same thing. They would drive They would drive and do their workout and drive two hours back home just because... Uh, uh, it was home. It was home and it wasn't a motel El Centro. You sit there, I uh, talked about playing cards. Uh, the lettuce trucks would be parked in the parking lot of the motel where we were staying with their coolers running, waiting for the price to change. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is, you know, the salaries are nothing compared to what they are now, but still you had some major league, you know, Baylor and Ryan and those kind of guys living in this, not avoiding this motel in El Centro. It was a real motel. Like, it, was, um, it was a motel. Yeah. <laughs> in every sense of the word, maybe two stories. And, you know, there's no fancy restaurants. For entertainment, they would drive about an hour east to Yuma, Arizona for the dog races. <laughs> that was the closest thing they could get. <laughs> and, but it'd be about 10 days down there. So I would go down there to meet all the new, the new players from the trade acquisitions and write feature stories for the programs and scorebooks. So I had nothing to do either. Poker was the big, big deal. <laughs> and then the team would move up to Palm Springs. They'd cut some players. And then the minor leaguers would take over Hopeville and the major leaguers would go to Palm Springs. And that was a whole different world. Now you got the Gene Autry Hotel, swimming pool, resort, restaurants. That my, I'm not a big restaurant guy or food guy, but it used to bug me after, after an afternoon game. Okay, people take an hour to decide where to go to eat because there's so many choices. Then you right. get there and you wait in line an hour to get in because it's spring training. And, it was, and that was old Palm Springs back then. This is, this is Palm Springs, yeah, not uh, Palm Desert or La Quinta right. or anything like I mean, that. That's this when, is the main drag, Ramon Way and Gino Audi Trail, I believe. And the park, the park was conducive to uh, just the fans because they used to put fans inside the outfield fence, like on a warning track, would overflow <laughs> the park, ball hit into the crowd as a double you know, on the ground because it only held about 3,000 people. And it was... You know, weekend and Dick Dick Enberg and Don Drowse would be sitting up on the booth with their shirts off, getting suntans. It right. Was, it, was, it was a big vacation, is what it was like. And it's interesting. Like Major League Baseball doesn't step in and say, "No, you you guys have to have like some kind of standards for facilities." Well, I guess Dodger Town and Bureau Beach. I, I never was there, but I heard it was an old Army barracks. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't too uh, plush. But it was still. It was. A, it are. was a facility. It was, it, it was, yeah. well, it was something, yeah, yeah. Well, Gene Autry, when he first had the team in 61, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was still living in the desert at that time. I still remember a picture of the team bicycling from the hotel to the ballpark. Yes, absolutely. With Gene in his cowboy hat and leading the way, and I think Ike might have been in the picture. Yeah, a fam- that's, a, that's actually a very famous photo. So did you enjoy your time at the Angels? Oh, it was It was fun. But then in the hours, we talked about the newspaper job. The typical day uh, when the team was at home, you get you get there about nine o'clock in the morning, and you get out of there at midnight, 
Well, do the math. Yeah. <laughs> you come home and you, you crash and then you, you say, hello, wife, remember what's your name? And then <laughs> I had two kids come along in 1974 and 1977, and you never saw them. And Ed Munson, I said, he traveled, so he had those same kind of hours at home. Then he'd go on the road when the team went on the road. At least I had, when the team was on the road, I had a kind of a nine-to-five job. Right, that made it much easier. I had to. So, uh, but it still was, it was bad, and it was just... Uh, an opportunity uh, in real estate. Uh, a, couple, a couple of high school buddies and I started building some apartment buildings. Which <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, seriously. Wait. <laughs> One Physically, guy you were building them. Well, they ended up we finished them up, a little laying tile and doing some stuff because we ran out of money. But no, the one guy was a contractor. <laughs> His dad had been in a Dell Pebble in Linwood, California. They built the ornamental iron and. Uh, Thread, threads for stairwells and things like that. So he was in construction and he got his general contractor's license. And I don't know how we got that idea to start with. A Street and Buena Park, there's a corner lot you could put up an eight unit apartment house for about 100,000 bucks. And we got, we got loans to the bank and put it up and sold it. Well, we should have kept it. That was a mistake. Right. So we did that. We did a five unit apartment house someplace and did a 12 unit condo project in Fullerton over by the airport. And we were making a little bit of money, but then it got more and more complicated. And between the hours of the angels and six years of losing seasons, is, is that know, wears it, on it you. wears on you. And I said, well, we're going to do this full time. We're going to do it right. Well, we did, went into full time. Timing's everything, right? Well, the angels get good. Because Fergosi comes in and they win the division in 79. I'm sitting there, oh, you dummy, you left. <laughs> Plus the, the economy went to, in the tank, the interest rate, I forget, was prime was 15%. Oh, it was ridiculous. So we left, we didn't lose our shirts, but we had to loan them out for a while. <laughs> we, we, sold, we sold 14 houses in Pomona subject to the loans. Different than assume, which you can't wow. do anymore. No, basically, the person that we sold the house to, in effect, made the payment for us. But if they didn't make the payment, it was stuck on us. And we had out of fourteen houses, we had to foreclose on three of them, and it was a mess. So all this is going on, and all our money was. We had to put money into escrow to sell one, our last apartment building, just because the guy couldn't get just a loan get big off. enough. And we took seconds, and we paid off some of our subcontractors with seconds, and. We eventually got the money about four or five years later. But so bottom line was I needed a job. <laughs> and the Fullerton SID job had opened up. John Colwell, who'd been there several years, basically disappeared. <laughs> they couldn't find him. Disappeared? They, they hired Gene Murphy as a football coach, and they hired George McCorn as the basketball coach. And they couldn't find them to do, to do the job, so it was it wasn't a tough. Was it summertime or is this? Uh, I don't remember spring? exactly. Well, I got hired. I got hired August 15th. August 15th. Yeah, they told me the good news is you got the job. The bad news is you got a home football game in three weeks. And, oh, Jesus! And we don't have a stadium. <laughs> That's when they put up the temporary bleachers right, with right. no press box. So but anyway, On John, campus, John yeah. had, he just he got burned out and it was ended up living in Arizona. We we crossed paths with him a couple years later with a baseball regional in Tempe. <laughs> and I, I didn't know John because he you know he was before my time, but Pete and the other writers knew him, he was a great guy. Well I guess he was busy uh, palling around too much instead of doing his job was part of the problem. Then <laughs> we invited him over to a barbecue at the hotel in Tempe and he told his wife, I'll be back in an hour. Well, he spent the night with us. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. He's the last, seriously, the last I heard about him, he was a security guard at a dam someplace. Wow. So you 
I mean, did you think at that time, like the Cal State Fullerton job would be a more stable job? Uh, well, I, again, my, my memories of it personally were not very pleasant as a freshman, but they'd done to me, but Pete kind of sold me on it. And Gene Murphy, one, one session with him, and then George McCorn. Actually, McCorn, before I met him personally, I went to a luncheon, and he was recruiting Kevin McGee at the podium, even though Kevin McGee was there on the podium with Bill Mulligan to announce that he was, he was going to UC Irvine. <laughs> I said, this guy is a relentless recruiter. He's going to give up till the guy not. signs the paper. So, so that, that was the big, and the TAF, the Titan Athletic Foundation, had a guy named Buck Johns was good, fired up. And I knew about him from the 78 uh, Elite Eight basketball appearance. I saw that, I was watching it on TV in spring training with the right. Angels, and, but I didn't have any big connection with them. But uh, it, it was just a good optimistic time, and I said, well, plus I needed a job anyway. That so, helps. And it was close, <laughs> and, and it's how difficult can it be? Well, it, it was a lot different with the NCAA forums, and, but uh, like I said, it, you, got a, you got the job. I, I actually worked football media day before I was even on the payroll because the state system takes a while to get Sure, of course, so even then. August 6th, we, I remember we picked up Gene Murphy at his house in Fullerton, and you know, just chit-chatted. The media day was in Long Beach someplace, I guess, at an airport hotel. Um, but then when I served first day on the job, they gave me a typewriter from the chemistry department. It had a carriage on it, double the size, all these chemical symbols, none of which was a dollar sign. And I'm thinking, I'm hired to promote a football program or a basketball program, and I don't have a dollar sign. And what? now we're talking <laughs> a whole different way. I had an assistant, Janet Donovan, ironically, was Pete's wife. So there's that connection again. We had this office that we shared. It's, it's a closet. I mean, it really is. There's, there's in the main hallway of the gym and had the board of sports information on the door. Well, all people saw was information. So everybody going through the gym that needed a question. Would come to you. At our, we had one of those half doors, like oh, a barn right. door. Yeah, yep. So we couldn't, we'd have to close it, and then there was no windows, and it was hot, and the <laughs> air conditioning didn't work very good. And it, we didn't have a phone. The phone rang, and the, there was a wall between us where the ticket office was. We had to go out the door around or get on the phone. It's, I think about it now. I just can't, can't believe we functioned. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a, a facade they put up for you for a job, and then you get in, and you don't have a typewriter with a dollar sign, finally, and you're in a box. And I, I'm a pretty calm person, but I finally one day took the typewriter, lifted it, and it was heavy because it was metal, it was sure. oversized. I threw it out in the hallway. I said, <laughs> now it's broken, I gotta get a new typewriter. So they finally got me a new typewriter and I got the phone squared away. And this is in the age of ditto. You type your, the routine was so different than it is now. On a, on a football week, you type your release. You, you worked on it mostly at home Sunday, but you typed it on the stencil on Monday, ran it off on the ditto machine, folded it, stuffed it in envelopes because you had to get it in the mail Monday to do you any good to get it out for a Tuesday or get Wednesday it. receipt. And you had to have your, you know, it was... You didn't email it? <laughs> uh, the first time I saw email was in 1984, the Olympics, when we hosted Team Handball, and they had this electronic mail system, which was like, it looked like a Pac-Man machine. It was a big console, and you stood there, and you typed in stuff, and that was some form of email, but that was the first I ever heard of that. All right. So... Those first couple of years at Fullerton, were they easy? Or, I mean, because you're trailblazing at that point. I mean, well, the good news was the first three road trips were Reno, Las Vegas, and Honolulu. <laughs> I said, this is better than Kansas City, Minneapolis already. And Oakland. Yeah. And Oakland, or the places the angels are taking me. Uh, but it, it just was fun. It was the start of something new. And that first football game, 
I, I hate to say it, but it was all downhill after that because we beat Fresno. We played the game at the Tinker Toy Stadium where the players and the coaches built the stadium, literally. People don't understand it. The Rose Parade bleachers, they put them up. Well, it was fun putting them up. Now, where would they have played if they... That- well, they that's the problem. They played like six different places. Fullerton High School Stadium. They tried to play at Anaheim Stadium, but never drew enough to make pay the rent. They, they played technically played one game at LA Coliseum when they faced Grambling and drew 60,000 people, 58,000 for Grambling and 2,000 for Fullerton. Right. Uh, they played at Santa Ana Stadium, which was probably called Santa Ana Bowl at that time. Glover? Well, Glover was after the fact. I don't. That, okay. that was an emergency situation right. that we'll get to. Um, so that was Gene Murphy. That was his, you got to have. You know, they were playing like two home games and nine road games every year. So you wondered why you had trouble winning. Right. Jim Coletto was the head coach. He went on to a great coaching career in the colleges and pros. I mean, was it wasn't for lack of talent, and he had some uh, coaches on his staff that you know, went on to become head coaches. But it was just an unworkable situation. So Gene comes up with this idea, and some you know, Gene had contacts. Some, the guy with the Rose Parade said, oh, I, I need to store these bleachers in the off-season for the Rose Parade. You can use them for free. you so you got to put them up and take them down in you know, August to November. So they, they built the stadium. Well, it didn't have a press box. They, we had two boxes scaffolding behind the bleachers. We actually ran a pulley like with a bucket to put the note because we had maybe four chairs in one box and four chairs in the other box and between the radio announcers and a couple of beat reporters and poor Janet Donovan she had he came up the bleachers and he had to climb over the railing and she's wearing a skirt oh my <laughs> so it was an interesting situation but anyway this first game at Fresno the place was full because they put up about who knows how many we could handle 8,000 I think is what we said well the problem was everyone sat started to split it up sit on the east side and the west side but the sun was it was a day game the sun was right in your face for the people on the east side so they came over the west side over <laughs> now we're, we're worried the bleachers are going to collapse there's more people than it's designed for <laughs> but Florida wins the game and Fresno was a de- decent program and it was division one it was PCAA Fullerton, Bobby Reynolds ran back a kickoff for a touchdown, ran back another one 90 yards to set up a touchdown. We blocked a kick for a touchdown, had a pick six for a touchdown. Just unbelievably huge plays and beat Fresno. And then the party went to a place called Barney and Charlie's. It was a a bar in the Holiday Inn over on Harbor and 91 Freeway. And that went all night. And it was, I still remember the, the, the guy who ran the hotel was a big fan, obviously, and he was just in heaven. And to see what had been accomplished, uh, it was incredible. Well, the next game we lost, and then we won. We were like three and three, and then reality set in, and I think the team ended up like three and eight or something oh. like that. But that 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 game was uh, just incredible. What now? You had mentioned it. You had the Olympics at Cal State Fullerton in 1984. That must have been pretty interesting because obviously that it doesn't happen overnight. There's probably pre-planning by 83 or 82. They start deciding if you know if you're going to get a sport. Were you involved in that at all in 1984? I would. That was a higher level than my pay scale. <coughs> the president, Dr. Joel Plummer Cobb, did some lobbying. Anyway, we had to get something, but we ended up with team handball. Alex Omoloff who had been the original basketball coach at Fullerton. Okay. Came over from FJC with a national powerhouse team and a couple of guys from Detroit named Edgar Clark 
and I forget the other guy's name at the moment, but they were really good. 60-61 was their first team. They didn't have a gym. It was the same old deal. Played at Fullerton High, Fullerton J.C. God, that's amazing. And they amazing. went to the NIA playoffs and with them like an eight-man roster. Anyway, Alex was from, I think, Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia, one of the two, and had played team handball. And around his basketball coaching duties, he taught team handball in the Titan gym, which didn't exist. I don't know where he taught it. And so he had some influence with somebody at Team Handball. And, you know, everyone assumes Team Handball is played with a wall. Well, it's not. It's a sport that's played more like basketball. It's more like soccer, water polo, and basketball mixed up. Yeah, it's it's a weird. And at Titan Gym, they modified it. They folded up the bleachers partway on each side because the court is wider than a basketball court. So you had to have this wall effect. The length was okay. And so it was kind of like nobody really wanted team handball. There was no team handball facility, but Fullerton's was convertible re- re- relatively inexpensively. So that's kind of how we got it. And and that's a big sport in Europe, and it's huge. But in Southern California, nobody knows what that. Yeah. Now and so that was a big event though to have on. It campus. was big. It was it, the gym that only held about three thousand because of the part of the bleachers being folded right, up, closed up. And the high, the highlight, the low light, the most memorable moment was the, the they played. There were six teams, six countries represented, each male and female. So one one day would be three women's matches, and the next day would be three men. It came down to gold medal game. The men's gold medal game was going to be played at the Forum in L.A., not even the Titan Gym. So we didn't get the finals. But the women's was, well, the South Koreans won. And when they folded up the bleachers, they built a rail out of wood to keep you know people from falling down. Well, the South Koreans went over to the crowd, and there's probably was 10 feet high, so they're waving and talk, trying to touch hands and stuff like that. People leaning on the rail, the rail, the rail collapses. About 10 people tumbled down and land on the oh, South Korean team. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, there, no one seriously got hurt. In fact, the, the team doctor assigned to the Olympics and myself ended up at the hospital representing, you know, the, the organization who were at the time. And people, uh, so I, I got interviewed by David Hartman on Good Morning LA and all this stuff. <laughs> oh, and I, basically, they were looking for something bad to happen to the Olympics, truthfully. Right. They had run so smoothly. Well, here, finally, the first snafu, I said, there were no broken bones, there were no stitches, all minor injuries, everything's fine. And I tried to right. pin, pin down the media. That was my big exposure to the Olympics, and that's you know, the most memorable thing. <laughs> Other than the fact that we, we, we went to the forum. And the, I, I can't remember who won, but the men gold medal. But then we had to clean out the building because the Lakers were coming in or somebody was coming in. I got a TV set and a hand truck, which was, I still got the hand truck in my garage. There's, there's no place to return it to. Because <laughs> when they took over Titan Gym for the preliminaries, they gutted the building, basically. Not you know, structural walls, but took all the office equipment out, bookcases, everything, did a security check, and then... I had an office that used to be somebody else's before representing Team Handball, but it was a whole different deal. But once they moved out, then they had to move it back in to make it Cal State Florida's tight gym again. So anything that was not bolted down, take it as someone else is going to take it. Right. So I got a TV set that lasted quite a few years. <laughs> when did you start building your sports information department and was other than you and Mrs. Donovan? Yeah, well, <clears throat> even with football, it was me and Janet for a while. I mean, that's amazing to think just two people. And Janet left to work for the Anaheim Hills Golf Course. So I, Smart woman. <laughs> well, 
we'll go back to when I was hired, Mike Mullally was AD. He basically said, we've got three home football games. We've got whatever the number was, 12 home basketball games. Promote those, sell those. That's your job. No worry about Title IX. No worry about right. you know, the so-called Track, minor sports, country, tennis, and stuff yeah. like that. So the focus was on football, basketball, and baseball by not so economically, but by demand and skill and national prowess and right. things like that. Because that was going to make you the money. Those football games and the basketball games would make you some money. Yeah, that was it. And, you know, like I said, the TAF was fired up. They had uh, fundraising events, competitions. They called the TAF Olympics. And people, and there was the most involvement I saw, well, when they dropped football, that was the biggest thing that happened. The people disappeared because it's such a perfect sport. Once a week or once every other week, advance a couple hours of tailgating and post game. Right. It's just it's just built for the fans and the interest, and the the, the money. It trickles. It doesn't trickle in like it is when you got football. I mean, right. that's, that's why the, all these big programs spend all the money they do. They don't make it. They lose millions of dollars on the operation, but. The good old alumni kicking the money, and you know, it's a whole different story. But at our at Fullerton's level, once they drop the program, the the, the bodies disappear. It's, right, it's just not there. It's just not there. So, for you, with then, did it take by the mid '80s for you to start to get like more than just the two of you and, and get um, an apartment, or did it get into the '90s? Well, I think Title IX spurred it. They said you got to get more attention to women's sports. I said, well, we got four events going. I can only go to one at a time. Right. So the what, I was using like Tim Murphy, Gene's son. He was a big help. He did, he did uh, my own son and went to school there. So I had some good student assistants, and then Ron Fremont came from UCLA when we opened it up because he had worked for women's sports in UCLA, so he was a good hire. Okay. Plus, he turned to be an outstanding worker. In fact, he just retired as vice president of uh, Cal State San Bernardino. So, wow. <laughs> he is, and I lucked out many of my uh, staff. Mark Landon worked temporarily. He was a... Uh, Ended up working for Circus Vargas, who was their operations director. Chris Foster, a sports writer for the LA Times. Right. Yep. He was uh, one of my assistants for a while. Um, and it was, they weren't state jobs, they were associated students' jobs. And HR came up with some different deals. Of course and, they did. Uh, <laughs> and then Cindy Walton came from Colorado State. She went to school, but she worked for the conference office there. She handled a lot of sports, and she's now a big time real estate broker. In, uh, Someplace outside of Denver, can't think of the name of the town. And then Mike Greenlee, uh, he comes along and former baseball player. He's the graphics guru, and now he's working for the student, uh, Associated Students on campus. Ryan Ermerling came up with the idea of uh, um, audio streaming and built a business and built it out of his garage in Buena Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moved it to Arizona and sold it to the big corporation. Now he's semi-retired, I guess, from Las Vegas. <laughs> that lucky son of a guy. <laughs> and Jason Palmier was a student. Was a P, he was a PA announcer for Valencia High School. Walked in the office one day said, he's about five foot three with his little voice. says, I do the PA. <laughs> and his voice was not little. So he did the PA for us a lot of times. He went on and worked at USC and Texas. Now he's working for the school district in Porterville, which is a little different, a little different. different tract. Uh, I'm probably leaving somebody out, but bottom line was I had some great assistants. Uh, I won't, I'll take credit. Oh, Jody Roginson. Jody, yep. She uh, was a, fo- a softball player of not great repute at Florida, but she f- found a lineup error that UCLA made one year and ended up in an NCAA 
championship game victory because the other coach had made a wrong substitution or something like that. So that was Jody's claim to fame. But <laughs> it was important at the time. And she got her doctorate. She's a uh, associate AD at Texas Tech or someplace like that. So got a pretty good uh, tree, yes. What was your managerial style, right? Because you've got, especially in the SID office, there's a lot of turnover. Well, it's hard to delegate one. You, it's, you, know, you get your hands on everything. But if, if I found somebody that was capable, I think my style was go for it. I'll tr- I, I'd rather try to re- rein you in than to try to kick you in the butt and make you do some more. Uh, in simple, simplest terms, that's probably it. Um, it worked. It worked, and then I, I said, you know, I worked hard. I lived, unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, less than a less than a mile from my office, so I could walk home for lunch or ride a bike, and right. be back and forth in five ten. The problem was, I go home at night and have dinner. To well, I can go back to the office for a couple hours, and you know, you're putting away too much time. Right. Um, but, you and so that I damn said, couch I, sleeping yeah. on it. <laughs> but I, yeah, that's yeah. My mother-in-law's couch was in the office. I spent a couple nights there that probably wasn't supposed to. But, <laughs> You hear the custodians coming in in the morning. It was time to get up. They had showers there, so what the heck. But you um, did a wonderful job of of collecting and getting people over those time periods when Fullerton's a stepping stone, really. It's not, yeah. you know, you're the long-term rock, but you had really good people coming in and grooming them. Yeah, like when we dropped football, that was the biggest problem was Cindy had left, so they didn't replace her. They eliminated equipment job, eliminated trainer. So we were really skimmy, but the Title IX saved us because the other sports had to, if we're going to give it the same attention to football and basketball, give it to, uh, you know, women's fencing or women's track. We needed to have some bodies, so that that's where we got some positions created. Right. So we talked about this before we even started, but the technological changes from you throwing a typewriter into the hallway <laughs> to like when you cover for Andrea and you're trying to figure out why would anybody want to be on this thing called Twitter? I mean, what was that change like over those 30 years that you saw that you just shook your head and go, I can't believe we're doing audio streaming where I used to have to lug all the gear up to you know Anaheim Stadium or Santa Ana Bowl and be the one-man band. Was that technological change just shocking to see? It was shocking, but it spread out over so many years. It was gradual. I don't know if there was one time when it suddenly said, wait, this is a different cat. And I was, I was taught Larry Rivera, who was a fan, a booster, a beer salesman, showed me how to run a Macintosh. I want to say an iMac, but it was before an iMac, whatever. Right. A little six inch by its eight inch screen. And yeah, when did you get a computer? When did a computer fall into your office? Well, sometime in the 1980s, I guess. Late 80s? Probably late 80s, yeah. Well, I can remember the biggest, biggest impact was desktop publishing. Okay. Because you used to, you'd type something on a piece of paper, send it to a typesetter, they would typeset it, and you would proofread it, then they would paste it up and. Uh, the copy was easy. The halftones was a whole different story. But then also now you can do it on one thing. You can see what the finished product looks like on your screen, and you can keep it, and you want to modify it next year. You don't, you don't have to retype everything. So that, that was probably the most dramatic change in what it led to, the computerized stat programs. Okay. Cause, and then everyone, just like everything else, at the, when, at the outset, there's a whole bunch of options. And I remember when Ron Freeman and I were, and he was coming from UCLA, he had, had a little head start on computers. We said, do we want IBM or Macintosh? That was the big deal. Right, make that decision. Well, 
you hear the term IBM compatible, you don't hear the term Macintosh compatible. Right. So uh, I forget which one we had to choose, and then in the conference changed the other one, so we were always kind of changing around. So it was it was a challenge just to keep up with the how fast it changed and how fast it changed your your production and your job descriptions when you go to hire somebody suddenly. Computer literacy was something that wasn't was on the application right. before, and now and now it's. I, I don't think uh, SID types today they can't write a lick, but they can handle the computer. They can handle their iPhones and things like that. Yeah, and that was my 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 next lead-in uh, is writing. That's a lost art in the sports information department. How? Like, you're a writer. You're a trained writer. These people are working off 140, 120 characters. Like, why do you see that loss not being taught in school to well, it write? It starts with they don't teach them cursive, so well, <laughs> they literally can't write. Right. And it's just uh, the computers and the phone, everything's designed to be more brief so you don't spell things out. Um, Does that just make your eyes just... Cringe. Well, we had, we had an ongoing battle between, and it wasn't a battle, but it was a disagreement. We tried to write everything AP style. When okay. the, when the internet came along, don't be a homer because what you're writing and like for a while there, the register would run word for word what we put on a website. So we're in effect we're writing what the right, good just, news was we're getting our stuff in the paper. The bad news was I could write the worst story, make all kinds of mistakes, and they don't know how to edit. And they're going to put it right on the paper. Right, they just copy and paste. So we always, and we mean me. Uh, one thing I demand is uh, my students and the workers write it AP style, cause, which is the inverted pyramid, old journalism school 101. You don't know how long the how much space the paper has. You're going to cut off from the bottom, so you better have all your facts at the top, the most important stuff first. They don't. Most people, not to say, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the young students and SID types, they'll write it chronologically. Right. You know, Fullerton beat Bakersfield seven to six in the first inning. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. Just what about the, the walk up grand slam home run about the ninth? Right. They 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 write it just the way they saw it because that's what they're doing. They're they're typing the game as it, as they're watching. And then that's their they're story. They're probably recording it in their brain uh, chronologically. Right. Yeah. But yeah, they're not they're not leading up to the ninth inning, which all these things happen, which is the story. Right. The walk off. Bury the lead or the, used to be an expression in the terms of business. Now it's to bury the whole thing, I guess. I right. Know. Bury the whole story. Is there? I mean, are there times you look at stuff and you just go, "Oh God, please, what's going on?" These kids, they, you know, I say kids, twenty five, thirty, they, you know. They well, just, you, you, you fear to be called the grumpy old man or to get off my lawn, but right. it's it's just hard to read some of the stuff. It's, uh, I, I I have an iPhone. I I had a flip phone until I, well, until I moved into rural Riverside County. <laughs> I couldn't get very good reception on my <laughs> cell phone, so I had to go to. Uh, 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 a, a smartphone? Smartphone, yeah. The flip phone didn't work. So it, well, I had to go Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. If, and now I'm married to it. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at my phone all the time. But I, I got two sets of email. I still got my old campus email system. That's I'm an emeriti, which gets you about three things. Gets you an office space if you want to use it, which is neat, but I've never used it. On campus, on at campus, any time. You know, I can go if I need a, a, a cubbyhole for some reason. Number two, I get to keep my email, which... I get, that way I keep up to date on what's going on on campus because all the, the wide broadcast ones I 
get them. And most importantly, I get a parking pass, which I've used maybe four times in now, 12 years or eight years or something like that. Now, how do you get that? What makes you get that? Uh... Someone had to recommend me. I don't know the procedure. There's, there's very few, truthfully. I'm proud of the, from athletics. Mary Alice Jeremiah, myself, Patty Sexton, somebody else. They're the only ones that someone has said this person put in a lot of great service at a campus, just like the faculty members that you think of emeriti. Right, yeah. So I'm emeriti. <laughs> I, get, I get a... a, a Mostly newsletter. <laughs> most sadly, mostly you know obituary announcements now. Oh, jeez! Because uh, you know the faculty is aging considerably. Do you get like a secret handshake or a patch you get no, to they, wear? They do lunches. Uh, yeah, it's so oriented to the faculty that I feel kind of out of place. Uh, uh, yeah, showing up there. The, the campus PR director. She left. Paula Selick left. Uh, retired about a year ago I went to an event I, I saw I, Paul Miller who used to help out at athletic events I, I knew about 10% of the room right but it's a big change a big flip people over the years oh you bring a Cal State Florida you must know Susie Smith over in biology go, no there's 3,000 people on campus and athletics is, doesn't really circulate too many other, other areas what was the last time you were on campus last time I was on campus hmm Recently, last year, within oh, a year? Within last year. Well, I was on, I'm on the committee for the Hall of Fame, so that we had some meetings. And then uh, it seems like I was there checking out something for Mike Greenlee. I don't know. Are you shocked when you're, if you can remember back, young fre- uh, freshman Mel walking on campus and what it looks like today? Well, freshman Mel in 1966, it's quite a different. It was four buildings and there was no food service. You, <laughs> parking lots weren't paved. You, I carried a briefcase and with a sandwich and an apple in it. I'd go out <laughs> in the car between you know, 11 o'clock class and 1 o'clock class and eat lunch. There was no collegial atmosphere at all. So that's way back then. From when I started in 1980, there was probably eight or nine buildings on campus. Like I said, the, the, the biggest thing is the facilities, the athletic facilities over the years have gotten pretty good. They built the football stadium. It was, was not good for football, but it was an outstanding soccer stadium with the corners, right. room for the corner kicks and a flat terrain and the press box, except for the fact that the stupid windows don't open so you can't get any noise or air in, <laughs> which I told them that before they built the thing and they still built it the way it is. But that's a well, who was that dumbass architect that didn't listen? <laughs> um, well, I think the architects listened, but said, here's how much more it'll cost you. And some accountant said, no, you don't need uh, the windows open. Well, Which, have the accountant come sit in the press box well, then. What we had to do, we had to run cables all the way down the hallway and up on the roof so people could have crowd mics to do football games. Now, I, I said, all I want is like a bank window. Just, just one? Just something I could put a microphone cord through and maybe some air. Well, no air conditioning, the lights... You know, they're automatically programmed. If no one moved, the lights would go off. So in the middle of a game, you have someone have to wave their arm and make the lights, so the, the motion detectors. So, and the baseball facility got, we started hosting regionals. That was a big difference after all our traveling. But we still never had a press box. It's still this temp, the temporary one that Mikey Rain built out of a patio kit. That's still the press box, which when we first started, the first season, we had a trailer that seated six. And, you know, it takes... Uh, more than six people to run a game. <laughs> that, to answer your question, the, the, there's lighting on the intramural fields. There's a, a fake, fake grass here and there. The facilities have really upgraded graphically. Mike really had a lot to do with the, you know, providing the artwork, but then someone came up with the money. The campus has put in more money in the athletics the last 10 years than they did in the first 30 years, I'm sure, that I was there. Right, it's come a long way. It's come a long way, yeah. Gene Murphy, they used to... 
I, I'd go on the road advancing games. That's another lost art. Tell people, we, Fullerton doesn't have a fall training camp, doesn't have meeting rooms, doesn't have this, doesn't have that. There's these schools. We played Florida back when Emmett Smith was a freshman. They took pictures of the Florida locker room because it was blue and orange and they had F's all over the place. They made it into a notebook and showed it to recruits. <laughs> this is what it's going to look like in Fullerton after your career's over, but that's, that's the plan anyway. Let's pause for a sponsor before restarting our conversation with Mel. So let's let's dive into the, I guess, the grand poopah of athletics at Cal State Fullerton baseball. What was it? Because you, you've come from the Angels, you come to Fullerton, but of course your first sport is, at that point, football. You know that they're a decent program, right, in 1980. What was it like getting into baseball with Augie at those years? Well, Augie's a special case in every sense of the word. <laughs> Plus, it goes back to before I even got to Fullerton, I kind of skipped around that. When I was working in the real estate, I was free to help out. I helped Augie and Larry Himes, who went on to become the Cubs general manager, run a baseball camp, Angel Country Baseball Camp, in the summer of 1979. So you had some history with so them I before you... I met Augie. Well, I knew Larry from the Angels. Okay. And he and Augie, they asked me to help with a brochure for the camp. And I asked, that, and to produce the brochure, I asked them enough questions that they didn't have answers for and I hadn't even thought about. So they made me a partner right away in the baseball camp. Wow. <laughs> so, and uh, Augie won the national championship in 79. The Angels won their first pennant in 79, so it was an easy sell. <laughs> I had this brochure, had Rod Carew on the cover of it, and we had about, it was, they had three, and this is, their thinking was have overnight camps and to attract kids from the desert, Phoenix and San Bernardino and Barstow, to get away from the heat. Give them a, and we okay. got dormitories on campus. Well, it turned out it was, more, it was much more of a local operation. And there was, we, we had ran ads on papers in Phoenix and stuff. We got maybe two kids. And so it, it didn't work out that way. But Why it, do you think that didn't work out? Just because of the cost, maybe? I mean, or just the, the cost and plus parents sending their kid on a train or a plane 400 miles away to camp, which so, you know, so, some people, as it, today, they don't have overnight youth camps because right. of all the potential problems. We had 200 kids each week, and they overdid it. The kids came in on a Sunday, so we had to entertain them Sunday night. Then we had camp on the field was the easy part. I didn't have anything to do with that other than creating team rosters and things like that, but we entertained at night. Took them to an Angel game if the Angels were in town, a Dodger game if the Dodgers were in town, Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm, whatever. So we, these kids, not to mention the staff, were dead by the end of the week. Right. So the first year... It made some money, but we over, we overspent. We didn't have. To, we learned that we didn't need to do all the extra things, so we cut it back. They came in on Monday morning, and they went home on Friday afternoon. So anyway, I worked with Augie, and it worked well. Plus, he he had an annual hot stove league banquet that helped raise money for the Fullerton program. Well, '79, because he won the title and the Angels won it, they put on a black tie affair, and Buck Johns again, the booster, said, "Damn it, I'll buy 15." I'll buy 15 tables. I guarantee you we'll do this. Well, he didn't guarantee the, t- t- the tables, but he got them all sold. So we put on an event at the restaurant at Ball Road and State College. It has many names. But Dick Enberg was the MC. Don Baylor was the guest at the MVP. So it was a high-class affair. Wow, yeah. And that led to the uh, creation of the Orange County Sports Association. Uh, 
Orange County Sports Hall of Fame. But anyway, so I, I had it in with Augie is what I'm getting at. So I knew the team and I had bought ads on the broadcast of the 79 World Series for the baseball camp. What? Ironically, K-Wow, I think, was, or K-Warm, K-W-R-M was carrying the game. Bob Harvey you know, was the announcer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so everything has fell into place. So uh, I knew the drill. In 1980, they, they uh, got eliminated originally, I think, in Arizona. Which was, you know, shocking. But <laughs> so then, eighty-one baseball season, my first season, they, they won the league and they go to the regional at Arizona State. Well, I know that place well. Uh-huh. And then they went there in eighty-three again, and eighty-two. Uh, where do we go? I can tell you where the regionals were about every year because we would always road You're trip road. someplace. Yeah. Then we started hosting, and then they kind of blurred together. But um, well, eighty-two was ASU also, yeah, because we won. That's year. We had John Fischel had a walk-off base hit in the ninth inning. Then the next night we beat ASU again. They had never lost a regional at home, so Florida. Wow! So that's the kind of caliber I, I knew I was getting into, but I didn't know it was that good. Except that's the '82 team. Then they went to Omaha and got shut out twice. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they, they left their game in Tempe because it's such a big deal to beat Jim Brock and the Sun Devils. Well, how was Augie like in those early years to deal with? To deal with, he's demanding, but he. I always tell people is, is he's the kind of guy that makes you want to help him out, and even if he's using you, right? And that's uh, he got the maximum out of people. You know, he squeezed everything he out. He squeezed of you. everything out of him. And he was he was such a uh, atypical baseball coach. Most of them never wore a tie, never wore a sport coat, chewed tobacco. You know, talked. To, uh, Bobby Winkle would be a classic example of the old school. When I actually went on to manage the major leagues, but some of these guys just have been around for years. There's no pressure to win. Throw the ball out there, sit back. Woggy was a burn, burning hot competitor. Number one and two, he he could uh, handle a microphone at the dais, and it was you know good looking, looked like a right, movie star. Right, good looking guy, and had you know good looking wife or wives, wives. <laughs> or travel agents. Right. That's another Something story. Something on his arm was good looking. He, he had two uh, Tempe in '82. He was between marriages. He had. One travel agent on each arm, and it proved helpful because after we got shut out twice, he stayed there to help Jim Fergosi do some color commentary on ESPN. And the travel agents what? had to get us home because the t- they didn't, we didn't expect to lose two games, and that's a whole different deal. We ended up flying home via Minneapolis because United was on strike, and it was a mess. Oh, jeez. And so those early baseball games were being played where? They'd be played on the same... Geographical location is a Goodwin Field sits at now, but the home plate was where the left field foul pole now is. Okay. And it was flat. The bleachers were maybe five rows, temporary bleachers that you could move with a forklift. And we would set up a table behind the backstop. We had to set up the speaker system too. They were a tripod. We had to check them out from the music department on campus. <laughs> Jesus, check them out. Check, we had to go get them. So we had to get some kind of a cart. And the, the amplifier, the whatever, yeah, here's my technology, the, the unit that powered the system had tubes in 1980, 81, 82. So if we had any kind of moisture, a drop of rain, it hit one of those tubes. Gone. There goes the sound system. There was a, a, a building on the first base side that had a men's room and a women's room, probably two stalls max, and it was also a snack bar. And that was the facility. And it... Had a scoreboard that. Were you shocked at how like 
antiquated. Uh, just, just well, I didn't know awful. any different because you know, uh, I knew major. I knew one major league, and at that time, Dado Field was about the only really big college stadium. All, okay, all the fields were like that. Really? But until you went and played on the road, then you said, "No, they're not all like that." Right. You go to Wichita or somewhere. Like ASU built Packard Stadium, which. You know, by today they've rebuilt and they've bulldozed it down. I think they've redone. That was one of the first ones in Fresno, which was 1984. They built a nice stadium with seats. We played a regional up there at 109 degrees, all all in the sun. There's no shade. It wasn't that good a stadium. So, well, Fordham when Augie started didn't have electricity at the field. He didn't have pitching machines. How, how in the hell? How, how the heck do, you know, could you do this program? And the kids, you know, even. Recently, we're still dressing in the parking lot, just getting out, changing their clothes. That, how, did that, Dado, that, how did Dado get advanced, uh, a better feel? Was it just because of their run? So, all well, they're rare. They won five national championships in a row, and just the money that the school had. I don't know. Dado was independently wealthy. He ran a trucking firm, so I don't know how much of his own money went. He, he worked for a dollar a year salary. Right. So the economics were totally different. Ironically, the, the economics worked for Fuller's advantage. Because Titans could get a walk-on to spend two thousand dollars to go to school, and SC a walk-on might spend forty thousand dollars. Right. So you got that advantage. When, when did you start to feel like, wow, this is an unbelievable program to be a part of? Well, probably that first regional, even though we lost, you know, we were competitive, and at that time you played a game on Tuesday and a game on Friday and a doubleheader on Saturday. So you didn't do much traveling, so it was pretty local. So well, there was no game on Sunday. No, you doubleheaded on Saturday. Yeah, okay, seven inning games, and uh, so you, you know Florida dominated the league. You look at the record against Long Beach was they didn't have a facility either, and they didn't put any money into the program. Cal State LA was actually the biggest threat to the program over the years. But then when it started traveling for the regionals, you started getting exposed to these other programs. Right. ASU was the obvious one. Then Fresno, they started, which ironically is where Augie went to school and played. Mm-hmm. They tried to catch up. Then we went to like Wichita State and see what they got. Then Oklahoma State, see what they got. Texas, obviously, what they got. Um, you shake my head. And that, that, the, one of the redeeming factors of working in Florida, even with football, I used to tell people, said, we're Division One in name only. On the white lines, we're Division One. Outside the white lines, and then it's, you know, it's a joke. It's right. ridiculous what this program's accomplished. Baseball was kind of the same thing, except we didn't have to be defensive. Didn't have to say, well, this is why we're losing because we don't have the resources. We don't have the resources, but we're still overcoming them because the players' ability in Southern California and the year-round weather and the coaching ability, not only of Greedo and his staff, the high school and JC coaches that produce these guys, they just look at the major league rosters. They're just loaded. It's, it's you know Southern California, Southern California. Did did you sit around when you traveled? If you went to that Texas or any other places and go, uh, that would be nice to have an actual press box with, you know, heating or air conditioning. Well, the original, the first years, just having a press box alone was amazing. Oh, you have a copy machine here because <laughs> we played football. We haven't talked about the football, Santa Ana Stadium. You know, there's no elevator. Right, it's an old so cement I had, steps. I had, a, I had a pickup truck, and every Saturday morning in home game, I'd have to go load it up and get you know, maybe one student to help me. Digital machines, tables, extension cords, uh, typewriters. Did you have to do any of that for baseball as well? Well, well yeah. you're checking out well, speakers, but yeah, you just had a table with. You, you had to produce a box score. That was basically yeah, football. You had to do a play by play and. You got PA announcers and just much more. You got more, plus more media. Baseball, 
hardly was any, ever any That's, media until yeah. ESPN showed up and then, like we, play, we played Stanford and Elway was playing third base at whatever year that would right. have been. And we had to put, I had, I, we, I literally hung plywood over the back. We, I talked about the bleachers earlier. As the stadium got a little bit bigger, they brought in some of those Rose Parade bleachers and made maybe 15 rows with a platform at the top. So we actually had some of a press terrace. I wouldn't call it a box. Yeah. <laughs> but then I hung plywood on the back to try to keep the wind off at people's backs and to keep your papers from blowing around. So the facilities, they were so obvious. It was, it was, it was, just, it was a joke. It was just, but then you look at the, the field. Disparity was just. Im- and then when uh, Fullerton in '84, the College World Series, in order beat Texas, Michigan, Oklahoma State, Arizona State, and Texas again. I said, can you imagine us competing with them in any other sport? Not no. a chance. Not only, ironically, '84 football team might have been able to <laughs> give, give and take bases. But that was one of the redeeming factors of the job was little old Fullerton show up in Omaha, and we you know we, we would run off ditto machine releases and stuff like that, and there's the other big schools with big fancy books, and then we beat them. So just kind of inner satisfaction knowing what we put up with. I know an LA Times guy, John Sherba, once said at a media day, aren't you embarrassed that your media guy's not done yet? I said, well, given the fact that I pasted it up myself and on my coffee table <laughs> yeah. at home and this and that, no, I, I want to get it right rather than get it here and have to show it. It doesn't bother me at all. When was your first trip to Omaha with baseball? 82. How, how was Rosenblatt back then? Oh, it was, it was still night and day. Rosenblatt was... Well, well that had, had anybody told you what it was like? Or was oh, this no. like your first like yeah, thrown... Well, Augie, you know, they, we knew a little bit what was going on. And the difference was... ESPN had arrived. Okay, by eighty two, ESPN was uh, touching it. covering it. Seventy nine, I don't. They didn't cover it. No. So because they, they started like seventy, uh, I was in Utah State, Logan for football in probably eighty one. That's the first time I ever saw ESPN on TV. Okay, because they just had their like fortieth anniversary. So that's about right. Um, so you go to you go to so Omaha. I go, go to Omaha, and. The stadium is you know, what I kind of heard of it. The neighborhood is the difference. Right. This reminds me of Chicago. It's two-story two, two walk-ups and homes and stuff like that. And there's you know, hardly any parking. And there's this terrace behind the outfield fence. And there's open bleachers. And the light towers are a distinguished uh, steel gridlock, girder type. Mm-hmm. Construction. Built for, Construction built for a, a tornado to come exactly. through. Exactly. Because they do. <laughs> and to see that we, we had so many different clubs sponsored so many different trips, but uh, a local organization sponsored you. And the, for those, th- those people have more interest in our program than the people in Fullerton. Right. And they don't know the, the, the lineup for the autographs. I don't, I don't think they had that in 82, but they had informal autographs where here's kids getting autographs of kids. They have no idea who these players are. But that was the biggest game in town, and the city uh, just took them took them to heart. The interesting thing is, I had to go. I was a ticket manager too. Oh, jeez! Of course you were. Of course you were. <laughs> and, you know, like LSU would set up a table at the ES, at the uh, embassy suites. Their players would just come up, and the parents pick up their tickets. Thank you. There's no problem. I had to get the tickets at the bottom of the department store downtown, drive out to the various hotels and motels that our parents were staying at, sell them to collect the money and to get the ticket. It was, it was a f- two full-time jobs, much less what I was doing normally. <laughs> so that's that, I remember that more than anything. That, 
I can't think of the name of the department store, but it was the last time it was downtown was dying. Right. The next time it went in 84, the store was out in the suburbs. Because my first trip with you in 2001, it was great because I remember like we stayed in downtown and you and I had a had a breakfast at a place that literally had a screen door and we paid like a dollar sixty nine for a meal that filled us up for the whole day. Like the best thing about Omaha is that it is in Omaha. It's not in Miami or in LA where they wouldn't care about it. But being that it's in Omaha makes it special. I mean, did you feel that over the years as, oh, it, as it got well, longer? Again, at 82, I remember we, we were assigned three Oldsmobile station wagons. <laughs> and it had a big decal on the door, College World Series. So you were a VIP oh, automatically. Yeah. People, they didn't know where diplomat. you were. It was, it's, so it's 24 of these Lincolns. Or, were they Lincolns? Oh, no, we had Oldsmobiles. Okay. 24 Oldsmobile station wagons driving around town. These were the tourists because Omaha was never involved in it or even Nebraska until the one year. So you stood out, then you went to a function, and uh, it's, I, I, I'm stumbling for words here trying to describe the difference. I, Bobby Gritch, his stepson, played for UCLA a couple okay. of years ago. Well, probably more than a couple of years ago now. But I ran into him someplace. He goes, before the, the World Series, they, they knew they were going. I, he said, what's it like? I said, Bobby, you're a baseball guy. You're going to love it. You're not going to understand how different it is in the major leagues and minor leagues. There's nothing quite like it. And he reiterated those terms the next time I talked to him after the World Series. Uh, here's a major league. And he was, he was bowled over. Yeah. And that, that was post-Rosenblatt, I believe. Right. There's nothing like it. And Rosenblatt was, I mean, it smelled like a ballpark. Yep. I talked about my dad taking me to Comiskey Park, and, you know, see Ted Williams. That ballpark smelled of beer and cigarettes and, and hot dogs and cigarettes. Right. Rosenblatt had that, you could never get that smell out of there. All right, because that was the AAA ballpark for the Royals. Yes. Yeah, so that was always being used all the time. And the Royals used to draw a couple thousand and the World <laughs> Series would fill it up. Fill it up. When did you, when you started going to Rosenblatt or the College World Series, did it start to become big? Like you get bigger. Like you go in 82 and the last time you went, I mean, there's night and day. When did you start to see the the expansion of the College World Series? Well, I think two things. One, the, the physical facility kept getting bigger and better every year. The press box, originally in 82, there was a, a glassed-in booth at the back of the lower-level grandstands, if that makes sense. Yep, yep. It seated maybe 12 or 14 people. Then you could climb up a metal stairwell to the roof. Literally, they had eight boxes built, kind of like a Fullerton operation, on the leading edge of the roof, looking over the field, which is a great vantage point. The problem was getting up there. And I remember one time getting up there, watching the lightning storm. And I go, <laughs> oh, Jesus. this is a lightning storm, and I'm climbing up a steel stairwell. <laughs> this is going to be my last time up there. And then when you got to the top, then they had a plywood walkway to walk over the roofing material to get to these eight boxes. Well, now oh, when they redid their press box, they, you know, they had dining rooms and radio booths and TV booths, and they built a stadium club in the right field side. So that was the biggest improvement there. And then just ESPN, it got to be, that was your, when I, when I went there in 82, I said, I was the ticket manager or something else. You needed, I had to finally start selling, I needed to take an assistant or two, or a photographer, it turned out even better. But ESPN, because you have a, a whole day, basically, of media stuff, and then every game you play at production meetings, 
and they needed, you know, the more information they got, the better, and you, you had a lot to give them. And that was your chance to sell the Fullerton program because not most of the guys had heard of it, although we lucked out like Harold Reynolds, who was familiar with our program. Right. And uh, Fred Lynn, who they did a couple of years. So being Southern California, we had a, we weren't totally anonymous. And then as the years progressed and we had more and more history, we were... You know, we weren't we weren't the schmucks from the coast anymore. Because <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of people realize is that '84 photo of Augie on everybody's shoulders, the color one, you took. I took. You're with the, with the last frame of the roll of film. Right, of '24, the '24th number '24. Right. I mean, you were a one man, one man band doing it all, selling tickets, doing the game, taking photos, writing stories. When we were talking about Bush coming to throw the first ball, I got trouble there. I was doing ticket business. Linda Shimamoto was our statistician lady who's since uh, later rented my house in Orange, but that's another story. <laughs> she, uh, she was doing the tickets and I, I got on the wrong side of the, con- the concourse and they closed it off because Bush was gonna come through there. Right. I said, I got to get back up to the booth. I'm the radio guy, too. I said, wait, the ticket guy is the radio guy. It's a long story. Well, yeah, I got trapped in that, too. And so I had to walk all the way around the stadium to get to the other side to go up the stairwell. Right, because we weren't playing in that game. It was Stanford and somebody else. We played the night game. Right. And But our players got to meet them. Yeah, we played Nebraska. Right. And so I was trying to get down there to get pictures of him meeting George. I got trapped. They wouldn't let me down. So I ended up taking that overall of him throwing out the first oh, pitch right. from the press box because that's all you, all they, you could get but they he came upstairs to the press box after his first pitch to watch the game and we met each other in the hallway and i actually ended up getting to shake his hand because wow. <laughs> i got trapped but i have no photos of george meeting <laughs> him so you know that's the way it works when you're you came out ahead i came out ahead did okay let's talk about and because you know this you were there 92 Everybody says Fullerton would have won if CBS hadn't have screwed them. What's the backstory there, right? Because they play that game, the semifinal game, and win. Well, it was the first time CBS had done the, the final. They were only doing the final game. ESPN had relinquished the rights, or CBS outbid them, I guess. And the weather, we were playing Miami the night before. It was going to be a noon start, which... You know, it's kind of early for a baseball game anyway, but right. whatever CBS wants, CBS gets. Because that's a 10 o'clock West Coast time. 10 o'clock so that- West Coast, or, you know, they probably had a golf tournament or something in the afternoon. They had to start, I don't know, but it was booked for noon. But we're playing Miami in the semifinal, winner take all, gets to play Pepperdine on Saturday. I guess it was Saturday. Yeah. And it starts raining. And now we say, we're going to basically, whoever made the decision, CBS and the NCAA director, uh, I'm trying to think of Dennis Pope was probably in charge of the operations at the time. We're going to play this game no matter what. Not, we can't call the game and finish it tomorrow because that'll screw up CBS assists. So the last out, I'm trying to think of who our pitcher was. It was the guy who was a stud, but he, uh, the last out was a fly ball hit the center field. And our center fielder, Chris Powell, is looking up in the rain. You think, oh, man, is he going to get blinded by the rain and catch this ball or not? So that was, and the game probably ended. It probably had a couple of delays. The game ended really late, and you had to go back to the hotel. And I think there was drug testing involved. Right. So the, our guys got very little sleep and played the next day, and it was cold and damp, but at least it was dry. And uh, Pepper and I had their ace. And then, because I, I made the mistake 
of mentioning this to Augie once. <laughs> strategy. <laughs> the, yeah, and he was saying, well, we got late. We got to the hotel late. It's a pain in the ass. We're, we weren't in town. Then they had to have guys early for, like, there was a pre-media meeting. Probably. You know, and then the game, you got to be at the ballpark by 9.30 or 10. It was just, like, literally playing on three hours of sleep. Exactly. And it, what kind of a nightmare was that? I mean, that's not... And Pepperdine had not played for, like, three days. They right. went, went 4-0 in the, the tournament, so they, you know, they, earned, they earned the right. But then the game, it turns out... It was a 3-2 to loss, and it came back. A couple things happened. The shortstop for Pepperdine hit the only home run of his life <laughs> in the game, into the wind. It was cold. And then it was a 3-1 to one game, and we got guys on first and second late in the game, and we sacrificed our number three hitter to put the runners in scoring position with Nevin coming up next. Well, they intentionally walked him because he was the MVP of the series. And right. after the fact, I said, uh, Pepperdine coach says, I jumped at the chance to walk him. Well, the next hitter, um, oh, I can't think of his name now, was a solid player. And he hits the ball to the right center that in normal conditions would have been off the wall, would have cleared the bases. But it was the wind blowing in. It turned into a sacrifice fly. So that made it three to two. And the next guy, Tony Banks, hits a ground ball that's heading to right field to put us ahead. And the Rodriguez, I think his name, the second baseman makes a stop. He's the greatest player of his life. And throws him out. <laughs> he became the coach at Pepperdine, and now uh-huh. he's someplace else. And so yeah, the, the, the rehash was, why did you bunt when they were going to set up, set up Nevin? But Augie said, that's kind of like what happened with Tampa Bay. Did. That's how we got here. That's, yep. That's the system. And, oh, I'm trying to think of the. You know. Well, I don't remember. When was the last time a guy who was not, like, he, they, the team lost the College World Series, and he was the MVP. That's very rare. Oh, that's, yeah. It's, but that's how dominant Phil was. Yeah, plus he was, he was operating under the, he was the number one draft pick by the Houston Astros, and Baseball America was, made him their Baseball Player of the Year. A guy named Bob Weirs, who went on to become the commissioner of baseball's PR guy, he was pushing, uh, you know, his Baseball America award. Well, we kind of tell... You know, just jumped on that. So Phil must have spent a whole day or two doing interviews, and yet he was able to focus on uh, his game and not let that distract him. I was I was amazed. Of all those players during that 32, and I and I know you didn't the last I don't know what 15 years you didn't do baseball directly, but you went to all those games. I'm a front runner. I did right. all the postseason games. But what was the when you saw were there certain players you saw them over that period you just went wow that guy's a player well the uh, Wallach was before my time so he's he's out of the conversation but between he Phil Nevin and Mark Kotze you got three diamond uh, golden spikes winners national player of the year and how do you separate them I don't know but like if you saw somebody like because it's funny I've heard people say this and Greenlee can attest to this because he played with them if you saw Dante Powell you went Wow, that is your quintessential body. Major League Center He's fielder. a player. But then you saw Mark and you'd be like, that's just a typical kid. Like, he doesn't have, like, huge broad shoulders, yeah, he long didn't have, he legs. he didn't have the tools. No, he didn't look like the quintessential five-star athlete. But yet, you put him at that ball in his hand and that bat, and he was a player. Like, did you see guys like that? And you just there were a lot of guys, and that was the way Fullerton so good. Tom Thomas was a little outfielder. He could bunt. 
unbelievably. Like if a surgeon. A, if a third baseman came in, he'd pump it over his head. If the first baseman did something, he could. He, he had about 20 bunts in his repertoire, and he got on base all the time, and he he had no, no pro career that I'm aware of. Uh, just the... Uh, or like Kurt Sarlos, for example. He does not look like he should be pitching. No. Little teeny hands, not very tall. Not but very fast. Not very fast, but he's... He's Maddox. He, he hits the corners. He does everything you want him to do. He's super competitive, and he's a real X's and O's to the baseball game. Well, that for years and years, Fullerton would play UCLA. UCLA would have all the top draft picks, and Fullerton would have these guys you're talking about, a guy named Joe. That In fact, that was, I think it was 82, Jim Brock said about Fullerton, but well, I got a bunch of guys named Joe because <laughs> they didn't have these big-name stars. Well, right. Fullerton had put... All the guys that went out for batting practice they had the Joe on the backs. <laughs> they called each other Joe. It was pretty hysterical. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an it's an interesting program. I mean, do you you're you were fortunate to have that front row seat for all those years. Where there's was there anything like that stood out that you saw during for baseball that you just went just the consistency and the ability to win on the road. These regionals, like ASU had never lost a regional at home. Eighty four. Uh, playing 109 degrees in Fresno oh. in the next innings. You know, Caffrey singles in, or Caff, Bob Caffrey, the catcher, is on second base. So right away, you, you don't think he's much of a runner, although he was a pretty good athlete. Somebody singled, and is he going to cramp up before he gets the home plate to win the game? <laughs> um, 80, 88, uh, Mississippi State, we're down three runs in the bottom of the ninth, and one thing leads to another, and we tie it up, and then Mike Ross hits one of these home runs where when he hit the ball, you're talking about my photo of 84. I, <laughs> I, before the inning started, I said, I have a feeling. So I'm going to go down. I turn over the microphone to our color guy. I said, I'm going to go down and something's going to happen. And sure enough, I'm, I'm standing at the edge of the dugout. Ross hits his ball. It's like, it's gone. It's, it's over. We, so there's a walk-off win over at Texas A&M. Uh, Texas winning down there. I didn't go. One year we had a budget problem. So I just sent uh, probably Tim Murphy, I guess, was our baseball SID. <laughs> So I met the team at the airport and did all, all the stuff except go to the game. Um, 92, Baton Rouge, and I hear you got Alex Box Stadium, which seats about 10,000 then. Um, 94 was Oklahoma State, which we, we lost the game on a walk-off grand slam by the Oklahoma State pitcher to go in the semifinals. So now we had to come back and win two games on Sunday against Memphis and then Oklahoma State with a depleted roster. We lose the first, or we win the first game, but use up all our pitching. Um, Has any program ever won as many road games to get to Omaha? Oh, no. I, that's a stat I came up with. I had to research it a lot. Just number one, in the early days, you're talking about the 80s, the same teams hosted regionals every year because right, it's an just, economic decision. Oklahoma State, Miami, Mississippi State, ASU. Big facilities. Stanford, right. which wasn't so much money, but just it was in California. It was Stanford. Wichita State would host a lot. Maine even hosted a couple, I guess. Maine? University of Maine? They were good. They, they, they're one of the teams that beat Fullerton in 82. Shut them out. Wow. They had a major league pitcher named Billy Swift and Where another you, one. Whatever happened to them? <laughs> well, that's in the old true regional days. They were the power of the Northeast. Okay. Because they'd be playing, you know, Delaware and right. Maryland or something yeah. like that. New and, Hampshire. <laughs> and they, they were, they'd, but they'd, they'd come out because of the weather system where they'd play at the Riverside Tournament. And they'd win it. So that John Winkin was the head coach, and he went on, I think, coached the 
some national team someplace like that. So they, they had the credentials. They just they didn't have enough players to right. sustain it when the other schools started pu- putting more emphasis because, on it. I mean, you're, you're, you're saying all these stats, and you're just thinking, like, that is a lot of road wins to get to Omaha. It must yeah. be hundreds. I don't know what the stats are, but I have to figure it out. Well, the big stat is Fuller has never gone winless at a regional. Which wow. is by, uh, how many times has it been? 30, 40 30, times. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Went o, o, gone 0-2 in Omaha several times, but right. not in a regional. And a lot of that 0-2, because I've been a part of that a couple of times, I think it's just the wear and tear. You know, especially if you're on the road. Like you said, you left. they left one in Tempe. Like, that's just got to be tough all of a sudden. Yeah. And and I think this has been said before, is Fullerton has changed a lot of the college World Series rules were. Seriously. Yeah, where they've had to travel back and forth, and they have to go back east and time. And, like, they used to be where you were winning a game on a Monday and playing on a Wednesday. Yeah, we were flying home from winning at Oklahoma State. Which again was just physically drained. It was high humidity. That's a place where after we won the game, well, we, we, I was talking about we beat, he, beat Memphis, then we beat Oklahoma State on a walk-off hit by pitch by Robert Mottos. <laughs> hit by pitch. But we, we tied the game in the bottom of the ninth on a single. It was a one-run game. Uh, I would say Steve King single. One run scored to tie it, and the winning run was a pinch runner pitcher who made a lousy turn at third base and got thrown out of home plate. So you go, oh, now you had your chance to miss a huge upset. Top of the 10th, you're going to have to put a guy in right field who never played right field, put a guy at shortstop who played 10 games, put a guy at third base who played five games because you did all the subbing trying to win a game in the ninth. And somehow Oklahoma State hit line drives at people and didn't score. Then Florida gets a bases loaded walk off, hit by pitch by models after the game. And then the play, we're in the press box. They turn out the guy who comes to me, the operations guy, says, well, you got two choices here. We can close the windows or we can turn off the lights. I said, what's the, what's the problem? He goes, if I turn off the lights, all those million bugs up there are going to come into the lights in the press box. If I close the windows, the bugs won't get you, but the heat will. So, oh, Jesus. So we opted for the heat. So we're just dripping in the humidity. Oh, oh God. Oh, so anyway, we started saying, now after, the, so the players have celebrated all night. We're flying home and all, I don't know how we got the word. Maybe cell phones, this is 94. Yeah. Anyway, we get the word that we're playing the opening game. And Augie just went berserk on the plane. Just, God bless. Right, absolutely. So that is maybe the rule then from then on. The, the, the last one's in, right? Last one in would not never have to play opening day. They have a second day. Yeah, they would play Saturday. Or and then the other rule was when we beat Notre Dame at the regional, and we were the higher seed over Ohio State, we assumed we would host the regional in 99. Well, Ohio State's Ohio State, so they hosted the regional. So then they made that's when they started seeding in the higher seed got the host and all that. That was the other crazy trip. Won the game at Notre Dame and had four guys arrested or suspended, detained, detained <laughs> for throwing pebbles at a homeless guy who had a cell phone, which was kind of interesting yeah. digression there. Uh, so I, I had to fly the four teams, four players home. Well, the rest of the team stayed and they hooked up with somebody in Cleveland and went and stayed because the, the regional was then going to be at Ohio State. So they stayed in Ohio rather than go through the travel. I brought these four guys home, turned around, flew back, oh. got, got sicker than a dog. Yeah. Plus, I got de- 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 we got derailed in Chicago. I had to spend a night in Chicago with no luggage, then flew to Cincinnati, 
and had a rental car to try to meet. I was going to meet the team in Cleveland, but by this time, I just had to meet him in Columbus because it took me so long to get there. <laughs> and, that, and that, So minus our starting pitcher, Adam Johnson, who's a first-round draft pick, our second baseman, David Bacani, two other players. We lose the first game and still come back and beat Ohio State in a regional. So that to me, that was unbelievable accomplishment. Oh, absolutely. And you talk about facilities. The AD from Ohio State came up to John Easterbrook, our AD, and asked to use the restroom if he knew where it was because he had never been in a baseball press box before. Ohio State, uh, uh, football, basketball, that's all it. That counts. That's all that counts. I, I, I never forget that. We, we mentioned it about how handsome Augie was, but you also had another handsome fella who ran football, Gene Murphy. Let's talk about football, right? That's, the, that's your first sport, right? You were saying you had three weeks, young man, and you had yes. football. What was football like at Cal State Fullerton? In 25 words or less? <laughs> Can't do it. Uh, well, Gene Murphy was Titan football. Cause over the years, Dick Corey started the program and had success. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought, well, Orange County has got all these great players. They're going to just dominate college sure. football. Well, it didn't work out that way. And, uh, and, and really, is that because of the facilities? You have to have facility. Well, uh, recruiting and just... I mean, Orange SC- County had great high school football teams, didn't necessarily have great football players. Okay. By, you know, physical standards, if you get my drift. Right, yeah. And so the, 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 the blue chip guys were getting recruited away by the big schools, so now you got a lesser, and where baseball, the lesser guys has a physical chance, football, you got to be physical. Yeah, you got to yeah. be fast, you got to be big, you got to be strong. And you may fool them a couple times, but not all the time. So Dick Curry had a, had a good start, but they didn't, get, they didn't draw flies to the games and they had the plane crash and wipe out his assistant coaching staff so his heart was not in it so that he had to they hired a new coach who came in from uh, Pasadena Mirror High School um, that's unbelievable too that you would hire a high school coach to a well Corey was modern day though so right and that was the thinking he's a, he's a name in Orange County he's going to draw all these Orange County pl- uh, players but it didn't work out so then they they had three more years in Division 2 and had some success, but kind of probably 500. Then they went to Division One without the resources. And Jim Coletto, you know, he would just bring in JC players. And again, it's before my time, but looking at the records, one year their defense would be pretty good, but the offense was tor- terrible. Next year the offense would be good. The defense couldn't stop anybody. So and he just got burned out and uh, used up. And then Murph comes in from North Dakota, so he's happier in a lark just to be in Southern California. Yeah. He had an ice scraper always on his blackboard in Florida. <laughs> when the thing's looking bad, I turn around and look at that ice scraper, Grand Forks. Um, I, I'm Augie and G. Murphy and George McCorn are so important and so talented and important in my life, and yet they're so different. It's hard to. I used to call Augie. Remember John Forsyth and Badger Father? Yeah. He was Mr. Cool. McCorn was kind of the crazy professor. He had his hair askew, and he he'd come up to the game and ask you this bizarre question about nothing in the middle of a game. What are you talking about? Well, I just need to relax. And then Gene, he cared about people. I guess to be the number one quality, he knew that the kids, he knew the names of the kids of all his players, and there was a lot of them. Right, and, and he knew every one of his players. And he knew every one of his players and their background, and he's got all these guys to play for him, and he had the ability to overcome the obstacles and you know, see every glass was half full, not half empty. And he used the us against them mentality. 
And then plus he could coach. He knew X's and O's. He was a quarterback. Right. He started at Minnesota, then ended up in North Dakota. So he's an X's and O guy. Then obviously he hired some great coaches because his coaching tree is un- unmatched, I think. Oh, it's unbelievable. People say, oh, Mariucci, the 49er head coach, he was a Florida. Yeah. Jim Chaney's been a coordinator of about five big time programs. He he slept in the basement of the Titan House for free. He didn't, even, he didn't get paid. He was just a guy. <laughs> Uh, and it goes, the list goes on and on. What, what, when you and s- with the media, the other thing is he was so good. Augie was this uh, better than a major league manager with the media. And Gene was his. Uh, he had enough corn pone in him. He he, he mixed up his New Jersey uh, native street cred with his <laughs> North Dakota Midwest cred, and then it's Southern California slang. So he has some pretty good expressions. Right. I mean, he's. They don't make him like Gene. He was unbelievable. So, he called himself a Norp. That was North Dakota. <laughs> I mean, when you saw, like, your first year and they're building a stadium out of, you know, Rose Parade bleachers, are you thinking this program doesn't have a chance in hell? Well, again, I didn't know what I was getting into because I'd been playing Major League Baseball. I had not been on the sideline with an SC football team. Okay. Although I was on the sideline, take it back, when they played Grambling, uh, that Pop Warner team I talked about. Sure. We took some Super 8 footage of Grambling players running on off the field that we spliced it in with our annual highlight film of our Pop Warner team. <laughs> so this is the kind of team we were up against. And Grambling had some huge guys. I mean, 6'3", 250, 350. So I did see um, some size. But until you stand on the sideline and watch these guys hit, you don't realize the impact. They're monsters. So Fullerton, you know, just the size of the, the well, Cliff Hatter tells a story, and this again is before my time, but when the Fullerton played at Grambling, the team comes marching on the field for practice, and one of the custodians says, where's your linemen? <laughs> and that was them. <laughs> <laughs> was, the, was that the game Cliff stepped in for Gene and actually did a media play-by-play? Oh, that uh, was LSU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we played at LSU, and... You know, Gene, I don't know what time of year it was. We played a couple games, and some guy was being kind of badgering or persistent. So Gene had Cliff Hatter, who was equipment manager from Alabama, talk to the guy and impersonate him. You know, the guy didn't know who the hell Gene Murphy was. Sure, why so would he? So he interviewed Cliff Hatter, and Cliff turned up his Alabama accent and <laughs> talked to the boy from Louisiana, and they had a great conversation. And they heard on TV, and Gene got a call from the radio. He said, That's probably not a good idea. <laughs> And that's Gene. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. L- let's talk about the Freedom Bowl, right? We talked about that earlier. Like, so do you believe in 82, that team's fantastic. 84. Or is it 84? Excuse me. So they're on fire, right? 11-1? Yeah, 11-1. The lone loss was at UNLV when Van Campfield dropped a pass at the end zone. That would have won the game in the last and second. Who was the quarterback for UNLV at that time? Randall Cunningham. Yeah, he was pretty decent. Yeah, he punted. He punted that <laughs> game better than he quarterback. And so, what happens? Well, Fuller is at eleven. We lose the game ten and one. So then we win at New Mexico State in a nothing game after eleven and one. The Freedom Bowl was just starting. They hired a director named Tom Starr, who was from the University of Iowa or from okay. Iowa. He hooks up Iowa as one of the teams in his bowl pretty quick for, who knows, you know, Fry was the coach. So they were a legitimate team. Big Ten, Iowa. Iowa's got a lot of fans in Long Beach. So, but then they couldn't get another team. It was an open invitation, I think. They had no links. People were talking Army, which was six and six. 
and somebody else and somebody else. And John Hall, the columnist, says, why not Fullerton? They're 11 and 1, and they had about 15 guys on the team that played pro football in between the NFL and the USFL. And they're right down the road. And they're right down the road, but that was the problem. The guys putting on the Freedom Bowl were hotel guys. That's why you put a bowl game on. It's not for football. It's to fill up your hotel rooms and your restaurants. So they didn't want a local team. And Tom Starr, who's trying to sell this to TV, wants a name school. He doesn't want a Cal State Fullerton. And Coach Fry doesn't want to play Fullerton because he's seen the film. He, he's got nothing to gain, and he, you know, he could get beat Everything by Everything to lose, right, yeah. So they end up picking Texas. Okay, you got your name school, but they didn't bring their band. They didn't bring any fans. They played the game. Iowa won the game like 59-7 to in a torrential rain downpour. The, the crowd was nothing because it was just rained all day. Sure. It was a mud bowl. And the TV contract company went belly up, so they never got their money. So it was a death knell for the Freedom Bowl. And to me, that was the, kind of the death knell for Fullerton football. If you couldn't get to your local team, your local supporters to support your team that deserved a shot, what else can you do? And then it really finalized the next season. We opened up in Montana, lost a close game, then it played at home in Santa Ana Stadium and drew like four or 5,000. So I said, it's, it's, you know, it's too bad. It's you got Division One coaches and players, but not the support of and, the community. And they never got to a bowl game. Well, we got the California Bowl the year before. But which, at, at pre, after that, that oh, was yeah, it. That was the end of the season. Yeah, 11 and 1. So we'll never know how that team, and I, you know, Mark Collins. Nobody picked that. There wasn't any other crappier bowls to get picked up in. Now it seems like there's 900 bowls. Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, it was a name recognition. We weren't on TV, so uh, hyphenated school problem. What made that perfect storm for that 84 team to be so good? Was it just the recruiting from years prior and it just worked out? Prop, what was it, Prop 48? Was that the yep, rule? Yep, yeah. Gray red shirt. Yeah, they, they gray shirt. They, they recruited some guys who didn't have the grades to get eligible immediately, but they figured, okay, if we recruit 20 of these guys that have good physical tools, if 10 of them make it, we got 10 star players. And then they had a quarterback named Damon Allen, who had some pretty good genes with Marcus Allen's brother. Right. And a couple other players. And the, the team won. Well, the team had never won. Uh, but in 81-82, we were competitive, but we were like won three games a year or something like that. Then all of a sudden, 83, we won seven out of eight. And then, so they, they got some confidence. And a lot of that's some credibility with the referees. I mean, it sounds like... Right? No, but you're... Plays that you used to make, and they say, oh, he, that, he couldn't have done that. They're not any good. That, that must have been a penalty. Now you get good. The referees, oh, yeah, they, they're capable of that play. That, that's a good play. So you had the continuity in quarterback. And Damon Allen, was you know, he went on to set all kinds of records in the US, in the Canadian Football League. So that's the key guy. But uh, they just played together and played hard. And, again, I think they won eight, eight road games, which – it's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> hard to schedule eight road games, much of us win eight games. Did you get the same feeling when you're with baseball and now you're traveling with football and you're going to big-time stadiums and just wondering, God, what would this be like to have an actual press box? I don't have to build it. Actually, my, not that it's the biggest school, but Fresno was always my kind of model because we'd go to Fresno and it'd be three TV stations at the volleyball practice and two newspaper reporters. Right. And the fans were, they were filling up the stadium. They, as fast as they could build stadiums to expand them, they were filling them up with locals. And it was the only game in town. It was a red wave, and they traveled on the road. But then I get the other side of that. When the team loses or something goes bad, 
now you can't hide it or it's, it's the focus of the time. Gene Murphy could walk down the street in Fullerton in 1984 and no one knew who he was. Right. Jim Sweeney walked down the street in Fresno. If he'd lost the game, he'd be getting harangued for... Right. Or didn't, his, win, didn't win enough. Didn't win enough, yeah. yeah. Or, or lost to Fullerton. That's the, the baseball coach at uh, Fresno was constantly criticized because here he has a new stadium and he's got all these players... And there's Augie coming up with nothing from Fullerton and beating them every year. Right, driving up in a school bus and getting beat. Or driving up in cars. Or <laughs> that, a story I never heard, this is before uh, my time, but they played a three-game series at Santa Barbara. They'd bust up every day. They, just, they couldn't afford to spend the night. Right. So, so that's, what, three, four hours each way trying to play a baseball game. Incredible. Well, I, when I was a freshman player, I should have known. Freshman basketball team, our, our big road trip of the year was Fresno and Cal Poly. We got up at dark, got into state cars, which were gremlins. This <laughs> is a basketball team. Until we're, we, so we your knees some, are up on we your got, chin. We got one 6'11 guy, we got some 6'3 guys and 6'4 guys. We drove to Fresno, played a game that night, spent the night in Fresno in some cheap hotel downtown, got up, drove to Cal Poly, lounged around the student union for the afternoon, Played the game that night and drove home. Oh, my God. And I, I said, well, this is Fullerton. Maybe it's going to get better, but not in the near future. When did the rumbling start about getting a campus on stadium for football? Oh, boy. I think that had always been in the back of their minds. But it got an impetus when the team got good. But then it was part of a youth sports complex. It got bogged down in politics. The city... And the campus um, withdrew its funding, so the city said, we'll go it alone, we'll borrow the money. And it was a political football. I, I don't remember, I wasn't privy to a lot of the vaccine stuff, which maybe was good. And when they finally built it, Dr. Gordon, um, he got it done, but they built it as a soccer stadium. Right. Somebody knew. Somebody knew it was like the end was in because they only got one year in it. Yeah, because and then they say, well, why, how could you build a football stadium and then drop the sport? Well, you only play even if you have seven games a year, eight games a year. You need it for other facilities. You got other priorities. So it, it made the problem was there was no great alternative. Right. And our stadium was too big. Uh, we didn't even talk about the game when we got moved the day of the game. UNLV in 1983, that was... Right, you got a call in the press box, right? I'm, I'm in my shorts and t-shirt because I'm going to take a shower later, 9 o'clock in the morning for a 1 o'clock kickoff, bringing my stuff that I normally haul up the stairs at Santa Ana Stadium. At least I got an elevator in Anaheim. I'm setting up for their game, and the guy from the stadium says, uh, you might want to put that away. You're not playing here today. What do you mean? we got to get 1 o'clock. Uh, no, the Rams are exercising their rain claws. We're moving the game, which they had moved a game earlier in the year with the Pacific game, but that at least happened on a Friday. So we had a chance to call the phone company, get some phones set up and things like that. Right. Played the game Saturday in Glover Stadium, which is a high school stadium in La Palma Park, which is a good high school stadium, but seats maybe 18 in the press box. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. So Pacific game, was we won the game. It was no big deal. Now this UNLV game, on the eve, uh, the eve, the morning, whatever the word would be for an eve, they, they move it. UNLV was upset. They couldn't believe it. The commission well, moved absolutely. Right. So to make a long story short, they said, okay, we're going to play the game at 2 o'clock at Glover. It's, it's still available. Well, we don't have any phones. We don't have anything. We end up, there's enough phone jacks in the press box 
that one someone found a dial tone, <laughs> and then we found another dial tone, but it was hooked up to a phone booth down below the stadium. So we had to station a guy in a phone booth for four hours, no. so no one would get on the phone and start calling in on, on a, on talking the, on the yeah. broadcast. And we and it rained, and there was mud on the field. There was water after the numbers. These UNLV boosters on the sidelines in their Gucci shoes. <laughs> that was the only good part of the day. They got wrecked. And we had we had Ed Arnold and Channel Seven, Stu Dan, Channel Five. We had probably this was for the PCA championship in 1983, so it was a huge game, and the press box was just bulging with people. And we Randall Cunningham won that one 13 to nothing. I want to say just because his hand was bigger than Damon Allen's, so he could shot put the muddy football better. And then a, a brawl broke out. It was just an absolute mess. Chris Foster was my assistant at the time. We took all our stuff. It was a day game, so we were on a deadline. We went to the Holiday Inn and got a room to do our post-game work, just oh dry and warm and have phones and stuff like that. And meanwhile, UNLV was staying there, too, but they came and they cleaned the mud off of their uniforms with the bed, the bed spreads of the hotel. It's, oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's an absolute farce. What a mess. This is Division One football? Come on. And that was... So then actually we started playing Santa Ana Bowl again. How, how good was Damon Allen? Um... Deceptively great. Would he physically? He's about between you and me in size. He's about six one, 160 pounds. Really, we listen about one eighty. But you, but in today's football, he'd be an absolute stud. Well, he's kind of like the he, he's, he's kind of like the guy uh, uh, Arizona now. Right. And, yeah. And, well, and Baker Mayfield. Or he's, the guy not as, Jack- he's not as fancy a runner as those guys. But he's, a, he's he got the little wiggle moves Marcus had. But his biggest thing, he was selfish. He would not throw a bad pass. He had the NCAA record for a while, most passes, consecutive passes without an interception. Right. And that's what Gene just loved about him. He said people see his running ability, his passing ability. But, but his, his efficiency? His efficiency and his lack of turning the ball over. Right. Because, I mean, Gene's been gone for a while, but I think if he saw the way football has evolved in college and now how it's bled into the professional ranks, he would look at Allen and go, you know, you wouldn't have spent so much time maybe in Canada. You would have gotten maybe a better shot because I look at these guys now and I'm like, he's just as tall or maybe bigger than a couple of guys that are playing in the NFL right now. Well, he went to the CFL, which is a more open style, three downs and right. excelled. Yeah, so yeah he, he was ahead of his time. Yeah, he did great. I mean, it's not like he it was a cup of coffee and he left. He was there for years in Canada playing up there. When was so when it was ending, nail in the coffin for you was that a relief? No more football. Well, the personal was sad because you, coaches are going to lose their jobs and players are not going to have an opportunity to play. But the reality was it was about 1990. The school says we're thinking about dropping the program. It wasn't the exact words, but we we're going to start a fundraising program to make sure we keep it. Well. <laughs> that killed recruiting, and they had sure. We talked about Prop 4, the eighty fourteen, the Prop forty eight, when they redshirted a bunch of guys. They had done the same thing for the ninety team. They had stored a bunch of guys in eighty nine, and took their lumps, figuring we're going to ninety, we're going to be really good. Well, when that word came out, all those studs all transferred. They just jetted out of there, or they, you know, they didn't jet. They had schools come and get them. <laughs> Yeah, a, all of a sudden they end up at UNLV. The or, irony was, ninety just the prospect of dropping the program. They came and took off the blue chippers. When they dropped the program in '92, it dropped down so much in, in the caliber that there was hardly any scavenging because there's only like four or five players that were 
attractive to other right. power schools. There wasn't much left. So that, on one hand, it was, I'm going to miss football, but more I'm going to miss, well, miss Dean Murphy. Ironically, he ended up at Fuller and J.C., so he still got to see right. him and see what he got to do, but he didn't work with him on a day-to-day basis. And it was just, you know, the 90 and 91 teams, that's what people remember the scores of the Florida game and things like that. They forget that from 83 and 84, we technically won the league. And between 85 and 89, we were second place like every year but one. Still competitive. Still competitive, despite that's probably the best thing is all these body bag games, as Gene called them. We'd go play LSU, then the next week we'd, we'd beat Boise State. Or we'd go get killed by Florida, come back and beat UNLV, or go back and compete with Georgia. We had the ball down by six with two minutes to play one year and come back and play Pacific. and be, they, Those body bag games really didn't suffer the injuries that you would think. Right, but Gene, those paid the program. They paid, they kept the program alive. Yeah. Gene would pull his court. Ronnie Barber played two series at Florida and they took him out. Just pull him. <laughs> Put some other sacrificial right. line. <laughs> hey, kid. No, you can't win with <laughs> But that, that must have freed up a lot of your time. It freed up time, but then you focus on other things. Um, like I, I remember in 1982 in a motorhome trip north to Canada, I had a typewriter and I was typing my football bios in the back, oh, of, a, back of a motorhome. So now I said, I don't have to do that. But then uh, we put, put a lot more time and effort into soccer, which is great for soccer. But like when Janet and I were there in 80, Janet would handle men's soccer. She'd walk out to the field with a table and a flip card, a scorecard, like a wrestling match right. or something, which is a ones and twos and threes on it. And that's it. Uh, maybe maybe a, a amplifier and a speaker to play the national anthem, but no PA or nothing. That was it. By the time I left there in 2012 for a men's soccer game, we had video streaming, we had audio streaming. We had scoreboard operator, we had a message board operator, we had a PA announcer, we had a statistician. Someone played the music? Someone entered it. Yeah. <laughs> there were like eight people to run a game that we used to do with one. Yeah. And so, so to answer your question, the football, we found a way to replace them, <laughs> to use up that many bodies. Now, the, the sport you, you did keep for your longest time and the last one you ended was basketball. You've, you had that run with basketball for a long time. How was basketball for you when, when you first got on board? Because that wasn't a sport you you were coming from baseball. So now all of a sudden, you're formerly a player of basketball, but now you're covering it. Right. Plus, I knew the Fullerton gym, and I knew the Fullerton program had not been very successful other than Bobby Dye had done it with less than blue chip players, shall we say? Yeah, several Tyler years earlier. Deal, right. Same deal. So McQuarren comes in from UNLV as an assistant to Tarkanian with a reputation he's going to bring in these guys. And he's got this guy named Leon Wood. I said, who's Leon? Because Leon transferred from where? Arizona. Okay. He went to Arizona, and then they had a coaching change. That's Well, he was going to go to UCLA, but then they had a coaching change. So he ends up at Arizona. They have a coaching change. And, well, <laughs> after he left, they did. So he just, well, he was homesick, but bottom line, he was a mama's boy, and he'd be the first one to say that. So I, we're playing at Loyola Marymount in their old gym early in the season. And I know so McCorn's got a reputation, but he's got no players coming back from a bad team. He had a, a fourth-year player named Dave Ware transferred from Fresno to play one year. He was a Jeez. six eight forward center type. Could score. He was the only guy who could really really play at that level. So it's going to be a long year. I'm a halftime at Loyola Marymount. Leon in street clothes walks out on the floor and starts shooting three pointers, which weren't three pointers at the time, but that's right, the distance. He, he, there's this kid in street shoot street shoes shooting, and I go. 
that's Lee Hunwood. Now it, it perked me up a lot. It's the way that this guy shows up because he was the best shooter. I, I, in high school, I played against Paul Westfall. Okay. At Aviation High School, which is defunct. I guard him and he'd shoot over me. And I'd get closer, he'd back up and shoot over me and back up. <laughs> I held him to 38 or something. You're excited. So that this is the first time I've ever seen it. It's Leon's as good as, as, as uh, he was. So anyway, we won four games that year, but we were competitive, playing team ball and stuff. You could you didn't have a shot clock either, so you could sit on the ball a little bit. But the, How good could Leon have been with a three pointer? Well, that was his shot. He he was not a jump shooter. He was a layup. He, he was a point guard first. Okay. I'm not, I don't think he ever made the wrong pass. He may have made some bad passes, but he'd come down on a fast break. He hit the right guy at the right time every time. And then he could shoot. And then a lot of times late in the game when you're behind, he'd go one-on-one or one-on-five and show what he could do offensively. His only drawback was he wasn't laterally really quick, and that's cost him in the, D, in the NBA. His reputation became he wasn't that good. But he was he was just fun to watch. Besides, he was, he was a poor man's Magic Johnson. Okay. We were supposed to play Magic my first year. We had Michigan State at, at the Anaheim Convention Center on the schedule. The Magic had signed with the Lakers. So we just to try to draw some interest said well we're going to invite Magic Johnson to give him some kind of stupid award so I, I I don't know if I still have the picture but my wife laughs here I'm handing Magic Johnson the trophy and he's eight inches taller <laughs> but that's, that's that was the other thing 80-81 day because they had the success in 78-79 we scheduled San Diego State BYU Michigan State in some other power school at the Anaheim Convention Center to try to sell some tickets. Right, because well, you couldn't play at the, at the gym. It was too big. You know, you, you, you anticipated you needed more seats. Well, didn't have, by the time we got to play those teams, we were probably winless, so it didn't work out so good. I mean, that was that's always been that program's issue for those years, especially those lean years you, in the 80s. It was just tough. Well, part of it was UNLV, because like, Leon was there 82 through 84. He's an Olympic point guard, first-round draft pick of the NBA. Unfortunately, in the same round, Charles Barkley was taken by the same team, Philadelphia, higher in the round, so he got the treatment. Right. Um, and then we brought in Tony Neal, a freshman, Gary Davis, a freshman from Compton, brought in a couple of JC guys, and we were good. And beat Wichita State in Hawaii, beat Oregon someplace, but UNLV was coming into the conference, and Fresno State was really good. We just didn't quite get over the hump. 84, uh, we went to, uh, one of those years, we went to the NIT, lost Arizona State on a homer call, so there, <laughs> and it lost to Cal in overtime to Kevin Johnson's team. So we had some competitive teams, but just quite, just couldn't, couldn't win just the title. Just couldn't get there. And then George got frustrated, and uh, Richard Martin and Henry Turner came in together from the Bay Area. They both played the NBA. And they're both very successful businessmen now, but they couldn't quite get over the hump. And then the president embarrassed George at a staff meeting, and he walked out the door, and the next day he turned in his resignation. And then it became, became a scramble. Uh, John Sneed was his assistant, and he, got, he had an incoming player named Cedric Sabalas, so it made us definitely competitive. But John had some... Uh, issues with some of the other players and he was gone after four years then Bob Hawking came in or Brad Holland came in and had it going for a little bit but then he got a job in San Diego and he was living in uh, Carlsbad so that's oh. that, he went to Titan Gym he went down in gyms for a while but then they built the Jenny Craig Pavilion right and then uh, Bob Hawking was his assistant he took over and kind of by default 
then Donnie Daniels tried it, and then Bob Burton was the first guy to finally win a title. Right. It's it's kind of been. And the, he did it with retread players from right. other schools. Yeah, he he didn't recruit. He just picked up leftovers. It's always been a, a Fullerton thing: baseball, football, basketball, facilities, facilities, facilities. Like they've tried to put lipstick on that pig at Fullerton, that gym, but it's always been the downside. Like you're you're, you're going to bring a kid in there and he's going to look at that place and go. You want me to play here? Yeah, that's the problem. It's still, it's 94 by 50 or whatever it's supposed to be. But uh, personally, though, I don't know if a, a newer facility would have made a difference. It would have made a difference in recruiting, but would it have drawn more crowds? I don't know. Probably not. Because the crowd, when UNLV came to town or Fresno State, that place was full and was rocking. It was fun. Well, let's talk about that. UNLV. For the love of God, they should not have been in that conference. People don't understand. That was an unbelievable team, an asset to have in the conference. Why were they? <laughs> what was those games like to have well, that they, circus they were, coming they were to town? They in a conference for you know the, the, the glitz, uh, the, the Las Vegas, as much football too, because they were pretty good in football. Right. And you know, we came in with Randall Cunningham. He was a pretty good player. Um, it, it was men against boys. You watch them practice. They go banging on each other, and there's muscular guys. Armand Gilliam looked like a tight end from the NFL. <laughs> Just beast. And they had some. You know, uh, Stacy Ogwin was skinny, but he was like six eight with a wingspan of seven eight. And they just had these players. And Larry they, Johnson. Larry Johnson was a tight end. Right. Just dudes. Big and guys. And obviously was a good coach. He won a zillion games in JC, and he, he won a zillion games at Long Beach, and should have toppled UCLA a couple times, but didn't, didn't get the calls. But the, was the atmosphere just bonkers when they came in? It was bonkers. Well, to go over there first, we played over there in the old convention center. It was seated 6,000. And the, the, the 500 of the seats, you had to sit with your head tilted. <laughs> Because the, the the deck above was too low or something like that. So, in fact, that's my smart. When they built Thomas and Mack with 18,000 seats, I said, that's a big mistake. They'll never fill that up because the ticket demand was so big before for 6,000. Now you got a supply. They filled it up with 18,000. They filled it up. Because it became kind of like the Fresno thing, the badge of courage for the town. Um, you know, the Vegas people, I think, were looked down upon, blue collar, the workers, the casino dealers. and Right. But then when they went on the road, man, they put on a show. So. And it was the only game in town, and they treated that facility like it was the forum. Like, it, they had the showgirls, and it was oh, music yeah, and loud. Time. Yeah, it was big time. You compared to, you're talking about what Titan Jim could do, or what Stockton would do, it was... Yeah, they, they were a fish out of water. They were the big fish, and everyone else a bunch of sardines. Right, because I remember once paying a security guard, I don't know, like 15 bucks to get into the game in 91 to get into that game at Titan Gym. And it was just, it was crazy. Yeah, the game in 83 where we beat him was, uh, I wish that we could have counted it. The gym supposedly held 4,200. There was 5,000 people 5, there. 5,000 standing. We yeah. had chairs on the end lines. Fred Rogan was a fairly new sportscaster in L.A. at that time. He called me, he said, yeah, I want to cover the game. I said, Fred? I got no place to put you. I'll put you in a chair at the end of the line. That's about it. That's all we had. In fact, I was wearing a tuxedo at the time. That's another long story. Right, yeah. I have that tuxedo photo of you. And it turned out because uh, it was Orange County Sports Hall of Fame. George McCorn had gone to do it, and his tuxedo was hanging in the equipment room to be picked up. 
and I don't know why, I can't remember what the inspiration was, but I said, hell, I'm going to wear that because this is like a, felt like a announcer at a big heavyweight championship <laughs> fight or something like that. And it was a maroon, it wasn't even black. Or, yeah, it was maroon with ruffles. Yeah, and Leon hurt his foot late in the game, so uh, there's a picture of me walking him down the hallway to an interview room, which we never had interview rooms until that game. <laughs> And he's limping down on crutches, in fact, and I'm in my maroon tuxedo. And basketball has given you some unbelievable opportunities. There's the story I want you to tell about calling the coaches getting lost in the second half, and you're <sighs> you're calling the game, and you're calling the game. Substituting uh, Northern <laughs> Northern Iowa, which is Cedar Falls, Iowa, I believe. David Dome. So it's you know it's a long walk to the locker room. You know. Brad Holland was the head coach, Ed Gorgian's his assistant. They go back and talk to the team. They send the team out, and they get talking, and I guess they don't realize how far they have to walk. The second half's ready to start, and there's no coaches. The referee's looking around. I'm sitting at the end of the press table doing the radio announcer. We got the headset on. I said, same five that started. And I, so I said, hey, you guys, you're five starters. They played about a minute before the coaches ever got there. Did you call plays, or did you just let them run? Oh, I had no idea how to call plays. <laughs> It's it's that point guard. That's what you're, sport, that right. you're there for. It's very spinal tap. Like guys just getting lost in the arena and they can't find their way back. Well, it's, plus we got lost finding the the city in the first place because we landed. We couldn't land because of a snowstorm, so we landed in Peoria, Illinois, and then bust back to Cedar Falls. And then someone's bag got left on the curb, <laughs> and we were tracking it down for three days. Uh, did. For those 32 years, did like did nobody call, come knocking and say, hey, would you like to come to Washington, Texas Tech, Louisville? And nobody called? And no, well, the Clippers called. Clippers called, but no and, other colleges? Well, I applied at Arizona State, my okay. alma mater, which was, uh, we, we had a problem with our house. You know, we were living in a structural damage. It was turned into a lawsuit. It was ugly. So we were going to have to, you know, we were where we were going to live in this uh, Opening uh, popped up. I thought, oh, that's my, my alma mater is cheaper housing down there. So I applied. I got interviewed, but didn't get the job. And ironically, the guy who got the job was a columnist for the Long Beach paper. And in, in the span of a year, they had the scandal with Frank Cush beating mm-hmm. up his players. The basketball coach got run out of town, and Jim Brock got arrested for drugs or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, some of the and unanswered prayers come through. Well. It worked out because for 32 years you, you were able to stay at a school that is, was blessed to have you. I mean, well, it was fun. It was, you know, just, just reminiscing today is fun, but uh, the, it, it wasn't work. You, you, you were happy to go there. You, so, well, you, to, you got to work with guys like Cliff and, and Lloyd who were, you know, oh, entertainment uh, alone. I'm trying to their nickname. Was it fire? Uh, Something matches. Gasoline gas, matches. Gasoline matches. Yeah, they would put on, we'd be sitting in the arena, well, like the thing with the LSU interview, impersonating the coach. And some of the travel exercises, we, we had a Marine Reagan kicked us off an airplane and we ended up going to Denver and a player we left the airport to go get some food and then we, you know, we, food, we shared a plane with Long Beach State, a couple of football games. Right. Stuff that doesn't happen. I've, I've got notes. I always say I'd write a book, but I don't know who the audience would be. But I honestly think this is the way Division One athletics should be, what Fullerton did. You don't need all these you know, fancy, frilly things around here. If you've got the students on a campus that want to play, and 
you know, if you got it good enough, you should be able to play and don't waste all this money on all this other peripheral stuff. Well, I've been fortunate that you, you hired Ryan that dragged me to Fullerton and then Ryan didn't go in 01, so I got to hang out with you and Nancy as like my Nebraska grandparents, and we had a great time. And, and there's three memories that I will always cherish that I got to have with you is one, I drove with you in Nebraska before I ever drove with you in California. <laughs> it's hard to do. It's hard well, to I, do. I tell people I can vote in Omaha. I've been there so many times. Exactly. Uh, I saw you uh, taking luggage and loading a plane in Arizona so we can get Arizona State on because they didn't want to touch their luggage. Oh, of course not. Yeah. And then watching you find a masonry bit so you can hang a speaker in the bathroom <laughs> so we can have a uh, play-by-play radio in the bathroom. So That's right. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. And that speaker still sits in there today. Well, next time you're on campus and we're together, let me show you the three air conditioners we installed <laughs> illegally. I, yes, that. Oh, we cut a hole in an 18-inch yeah. bottom wall. Painting rooms. and uh, uh, you know, yeah. That's, yeah, I got a grievance for that. Yeah, God forbid you were doing work. I was help, uh, making an office for a new coach. Yeah, and, and you shouldn't shame, have been shame, doing shame. that. Shame, shame, shame. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to uh, reminisce about the uh, wonderful times of Fullerton and your life and some wonderful coaches that we've stumbled through in our lives. I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been great. Thank you for your time, though. See you. Okay. This is Matt Brown, and you listen to Just a Good Conversation. Please hit the subscribe button as well.